Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day? It's a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft. I'm here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I, we get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. This week, the country continues its grappling with racial prejudice and the response to the coronavirus in ways big and small. For instance, the Dixie Chicks dropped the Dixie and are now going by the Chicks in a move that uh, mirrors fellow country artist Lady Antebellum changing their name to Lady A. Uh, Big news of today is that on Sunday morning, Trump retweeted a video of a retirement community in Florida where residents yelled white power at other residents. He deleted the tweet three hours later, but the internet never forgets. The White House said the president didn't hear that part of the video, something that occurs loudly and clearly eight seconds into the video. The president also apparently didn't know about the multiple briefings brought to him about Russia offering huge bounties on American soldiers to the Taliban and uh, other forces. The reporting was confirmed by every outlet this past weekend, with even British intelligence being informed on the matter. But Trump uh, has yet to respond in any way. He's denied the reports. Uh, He's questioning his own intelligence agencies and proving once again as has been confirmed multiple times from different sources, that he just does not read any of the reports that are given to him. Meanwhile, since we last recorded, NASCAR and the FBI released the images of the noose that was found in black race car driver Bubba Wallace's new garage, a story that has taken on some strange contradictions and glaring mysteries, with the FBI saying the noose was placed there months before, but apparently no one reported it or saw it during that time. And uh, even then, it was still selected somehow to be the garage of the one lone black NASCAR driver. It's very strange and a scary story. Joe Biden has taken a large lead in almost every national poll. Some have him up as much as 14 points, which is too high, but the average seems to be around 10. Biden also appears to be surging in both swing states as well as in the demographics that Trump won the last election. Most Democrats, like myself, would love to take some encouragement from this, but unfortunately, five months is a hell of a long time. So much can happen, and it ain't over till it's over, baby. Fuck me once, shame on you. Fuck me twice. Not happening. Meanwhile, the coronavirus continues to spread in the West, and current numbers of deaths have reached over 128,000. States like Texas and Florida, both with, both with Republican governors who had earlier scoffed at restrictions and forced closings, finally started to take action as hospital beds filled up around their states and numbers of infections continued to rise. In entertainment, Disney and Warner Brothers saw the writing on the wall and pushed Tenet and Mulan's release dates back due to a growing backlash from theatergoers. Critics conflicted about endorsing going to see a movie that could get others sick, as well as the increase in cases around the country. White voice actors uh, from a variety of animated shows, including Big Mouth, The Simpsons, and The Cleveland Show, all released statements saying they would no longer be voicing characters of color, with shows like The Simpsons, who have already had their struggles with the poo, pledging they will no longer cast white actors for characters of color ever again. My Girls in Heim released another strong album. Comedies from Will Ferrell and Steve Carell were released. The World's Burning. Police reform died in the Senate. I could go on. There's always so much to talk about and on and on and on and on. So with all that said, I'll start this week with the same question I ask him every week. Tom, how's that day? Just going by chicks, huh? Yeah, which, you know, I don't know if that's the best name either. Are they the chicks? They're the chicks, which apparently is also the, the chicks. They're also a band in New Zealand named the chicks, and apparently the Dixie Chicks had to like reach out to them and were like, "Hey, hey, everything's cool. We're sorry if we like took your name and got their blood." <laughs> everything's cool. We're taking your name. No big deal. Don't worry. Everything's cool. And I like that Lady Antebellum changed their name to Lady A, so they could be like, "Hey, what does the A stand for?" And they're like, "Uh, nothing." 
Well, don't worry, don't worry about it. Funny twist to that one is that there was already same thing. There's already a lady A who is still like a blues singer, and she's actually released a song about like George Floyd already. <laughs> so, oh wow, really? Yeah. So there. Uh, so that's not the best name to steal from right now. If you're Lady Antonio. Wait, like uh, an anti-George Floyd. No, a pro. Like Lady A is just a blues singer who is. She's a black blues singer who was already like singing oh, okay. protest songs like pro George Floyd, it, that type it. of thing. And Lady Hansbellum's like, we're gonna take your name actually now. And uh, let's not forget there's that um horror movie that I I believe was supposed to come out by An- now. Antebellum. And it got delayed yeah, Antebellum. Um which looks like kind of uh I, I think it's it's about like a an author or something who gets uh, like it takes place in present day, but she somehow gets trapped in a, a slave plantation. I think I don't. I don't really know the details. I think it's one of those like she's at a location in the South that used to be a slave plantation, like that has been yeah. turned into like a country club or something like that, which I I think has happened down there. And uh, while there, shit starts going down, like ghosts of the past. That's all. Like yeah. that's what Jeanette, I remember. Janelle Monae. Yeah, wonderful talent. She's Beautiful the woman. she's the lead. Um, yeah, plantations uh, being repurposed is a thing. I remember being very uh, disturbed when I first found out about the how many white women lo- were loved the idea of plantation weddings. Southern white women. Yeah, like it's a thing. Pl- a plantation wedding is a, is a big thing down there. It's probably still happening like this year. There's it, you know it's yeah it's not a thing of the past. Yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, objectively, I'm sure if you had no idea of the history and you just saw some of those properties, you're like, oh, wow, look at that large house and all this open land and greenery. And then, uh, yeah, no, you don't want to be there. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have your wedding there. That's uh, weird. Um, you you told me a lot of stuff there. That was great. Um, yeah, a lot, I wish a lot I would take the least interesting yeah. thing, which to me was the Dixie Chicks. But good for them. You know, why not? Yeah, yeah. People dying of coronavirus, you know, Joe Biden, black NASCAR, confederate flags movies the nascar thing the nascar thing so uh yeah they've put out a story that said the noose has been there since last october um so it could not have been they the fbi and nascar decided that it wasn't a hate crime against bubba um i think the what a lot of people are trying to pass it off as is that it was like it's a door a door hatch or a door latch. It's like or yeah, like, like for that. it's like a garage door pulley type thing. Yeah, a pulley thing. Although it is shaped exactly like a noose. Also, I read that um, NASCAR did their own independent investigation where they checked something like twelve hundred garages across the country, and uh, of all the twelve hundred garages, I think they found something like between eight and twelve total door pulleys that were made of rope and only one that was in the shape of a noose, which was the one that they found. And also I've seen weird, weird backlash against Bubba Wallace himself, the driver himself for being like, Oh, you're crying foul. What a baby dude. He didn't, he didn't report it. Yeah. His white crew chief who's been in NASCAR for decades is the one who reported it. A white guy who's been, in the sport for 25 plus years who obviously thought it was weird enough to report. So, and also like if you're, if you're reacting, sorry, uh, I was just going to say, and also, even if it was 
you know, they had found out for sure. It wasn't, there was no mystery at all. Like, oh, this was a legit accident that this happened. You still at some point have to be like, well, it's perfectly reasonable for Bubba Wallace to assume the worst in this situation. It looks like a noose. <laughs> why is there a noose? In yeah. Why, hey, I'm the lone black NASCAR driver who's been speaking out about the Confederate flag recently. And like a week later, there's a noose in the garage. I'm sorry for being yeah, suspicious. Yeah, it's not a hard that. leap to make. Yeah. But, and also, again, the important thing to remember is, Although he would have had every right to be suspicious, he wasn't the one to report it. If your reaction to that, you, the general you, the royal you, if your reaction to that is anything, isn't just like, oh, thank God, if it turned out not to be an internal race crime in the NASCAR family, like, if your reaction isn't just, oh, that's awesome that that didn't happen, that they're, because the, the response afterward, the public display of solidarity, after the report of it came out because there was a race that afternoon and you know there was that whole show of support in the nascar community where all the other uh drivers and pit crew uh went out with bubba and pushed his car to the front of the the race line and it was a very you know sweet moment it was a very nice moment a very public moment for a predominantly southern sport with a lot of racial tensions going on in there like now and forever for all those other white drivers to publicly go out there with their crews and be like no we got Bubba's back on this um all of that is awesome so when they come out with the report our investigations show this has been a, this noose handle pulley thing was around for months it wasn't directed to Bubba if your reaction to that is like haha Bubba you little snowflake like <laughs> you got some you got some uh, examining to do, man. That's fucked up. Yeah, I think people really wanted it to be not good people, bad people. Really wanted it to be like a Jesse Smollett thing again. Yeah, it's just weird. Um, what else did you bring up? Uh, the white, the white power Trump tweet. Is <laughs> yeah, that's the news insane. of the day with the Russia stuff. That's... Objectively insane. Yeah, I sent you the article about how it took them three hours just to, like track him down to like tell him to remove it. And here's the thing. If there wasn't a staff there to yell at him to take it down, he wouldn't have. It's not like he had a sudden moment of realization three hours later, like, oh, that was maybe a bad idea and I should take that down. It was his staff. Absolutely not. His staff was like, sir, you can't do that. You can't. And he's like, oh, okay. And it's just, you know, it's example number 100 that the man's a racist. And It's just him going to actually listening to his staff and saying oh the bad outweighs the good yes okay i'll take it down then yeah because if they were like no your numbers are going up people are loving this white power tweet he probably would have kept it up there for a little while longer yeah and also that like they said that he didn't hear that part of the video the entire video is someone like it's like 15 seconds long it's It's just him saying yeah, it's 15 seconds yeah, it's long. A rich, and there's it's people a rich saying, white guy on a golf cart saying, yeah, white power, white power. Yeah, it's a guy yelling at him, you're a racist, where's your white hood? And he responds, that's right, white power, white power. That's the whole video. And Trump's like, I didn't hear that part. <laughs> Trump tweets, tweet quote, quote tweets it saying, thank you for the support. It's insane. And then there's the other, the other big Trump story, obviously, which you touched on, is the the realization that Trump has known that Putin has like a, a pay for play scheme to target American soldiers and he's fine with it. He's apparently a, 
a story came out just today. We're recording this on a Monday afternoon. Um, so the story is, what, like 48 hours old at this point? Maybe a little less. But yeah. there was a, a new update just this afternoon. I got I saw it from the New York Times um, saying that uh, Trump was given a written briefing in February on suspe- suspected Russian bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Well, you want to hear what just came out since this afternoon? There has been there has been new developments that there was actually briefings going as far back into 2019. So it's been even there. There was new reporting saying, "Oh, he they're they've known about it for a while now." Jesus, so, that's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. And like he he has since in that time period invited Vladimir Putin to Camp David and wanted him at the G seven yes. summit and stuff. Like, and people were like, "No, you're not allowed to do that." Yeah, repeat, repeatedly will stump for Putin to the dismay of not only America's allies but his own cabinet, his own administration, his closest advisors. He's eh, he's what he says he is. He's normally, you know, when people are guilty of things, look at what they accuse others of doing. There's no easier, more obvious case than Trump. It goes back to no puppet, no puppet, you're a puppet at the debates with Hillary Clinton. He's absolutely indebted to Russia because they have a bunch of shit on him. His business dealings in Russia are so bloodstained and obvious. It's so fucking frustrating that it all just can't come out into the open. Um, but yeah, he's a Russian asset. It's it's awful. It sucks. Willing or well, that's our president. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad he was golfing today. Yeah, I'm glad he was golfing while they were trying to find him to pull down that racist tweet. He's obviously doing hard work. We're in a, a literal pandemic right now. So many people unemployed. The country is in shambles and he's out golfing again. Really good look from our president. Gotta love it. Do you think, well, I mean, Biden's surging. I kind of mentioned that. And there have been whispers from like, you know, White House sources, whatever, saying they wouldn't be surprised if he pulled an LBJ in like in August was just like, you know what, guys, I'm out. The The media is never going to give me a fair shake. Uh, I, I would whatever. I'm, I'm out of this now me personally I don't see that happening but like there has been like rampant speculation that like he does not want to be reelected but then again I've also heard that he f- hates losing more than he enjoys winning kind of like the Michael Jordan thing like driven much more by that so like I'm curious where yeah. where's your head at on that do you think he's like just I mean it's almost this past month especially has seemed like a daily something like the white power where you're like how does this happen you know, like, yeah, he seems to be at his lowest. I mean, obviously, we've <laughs> the news moved so fast in the Trump era. Like, it, it was less than two weeks since the Tulsa rally, which was a huge public relations disaster for Trump. I mean, huge. That was such talk about egg on your face. Holy shit. And we're already able to move past that because you retweeted a white supremacist and like, good and, God. and like, let American soldiers be put up for a bounty by the Russians. You know, like, that's and it's just this week. Yeah. Um, so I have very strong feelings about this because you said there's a lot of rumblings out there that Trump doesn't want to get reelected. Trump didn't want to get elected. I've said this since 2016. He did not want to win this election. He he was. It's he, been reported many times that he was very surprised that it happened. He was. I swear by this. I the night of the election, November eighth. I will never forget when they finally, because it took Trump a while to come out and greet his supporters 
after they had called the election, after this supposed phone call between Trump and Hillary took place, the SOP of when two candidates are fighting and there's a conciliatory slash congratulatory uh, conversation between the two candidates and then they will come out and speak to their people. We all remember Hillary was too uh, upset and devastated to speak and that's kind of a, unfortunately, kind of a black mark on that moment and that night with her campaign and her legacy. But Trump, it also took a very long time to come out. I will never forget when he came out onto that stage, he looked terrified. He looked so scared. And there there was already talk about, you know, this is just Trump's way of building up his brand, his reputation. His goal is to create a media empire. He wants something to challenge Fox News. Yeah, it was a branding exercise. That's all it was. It was a branding exercise, exactly. And he succeeded there. There's no doubt about that. Like, if he had lost, people would have looked back on this as a as a genius ploy for this guy and, like, a way to ensure his family's fortune and generational success for a very long time, maybe beyond uh, his construction business, you know, and his property cleanups and asset uh, just roaming the earth just pilfering assets left and right maybe he saw the writing on the wall or something there and decided it was time to go into this new because i believe he wants you know he wants trump tv he wants trump sirius xm stations i was just having a conversation with another friend about this but yeah no way does he want to get reelected. but like you said he he hates losing more than he likes winning i absolutely think that's true and i think he he has forgotten enough time has gone past that he has forgotten why he got into the race in the first place, why he ran in 2016, why it got as far as it did, and that he didn't really want to run. And I think if he wasn't so prideful, yeah, I don't. I think there's there would be a definite possibility he would decide not to run for re-election. But he is so stubborn and so prideful that he will never, he will never just resign this summer. Yeah, he's I... absolutely in it for the long haul. Not only that, but if and when he loses, not going to Hopefully, it happens. Even though I'm no fan of Biden, but if and when he loses, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Like the transition of power between November and January, I don't know what that's going to look like. We're going to be in unprecedented territory here, where. <sighs> anything is on the table in terms of how Trump's going to behave, the things he's going to say, the the innuendos he's going to make, the like outright lies and conspiracy theories that he's going to suggest with like a shrug of the shoulders that are going to just enrage people on both sides. Who knows how how he's going to handle this? I think that you know? I think that'll depend on the margin of victory um or the margin of the loss, however you want to look at it. Um, you know, if Joe Biden beats him, you know, in a landslide, I, I don't think anyone's going to be questioning that. And I think, Maybe, yeah. uh, I don't think he's going to have the political power to push back on that at all. We're like Republican senators sure. or whatever. But if, yeah, I, I agree. If it's like a close race for some reason, if something happens in the next five months that brings the numbers really close or whatever, everything's wrong. You know, it's just one of those things like, I, yeah, you're right. If he if Biden wins by two points, I'd be worried. I'd be very, you know, I'd be much more worried about that transition and how he reacts to that. And, you know, especially with like mail in voting and how, you know, he's been discouraging of that. And the, you know, coronavirus is going to fuck everyone up in November. Like, yeah, we have so many question marks still. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still very nervous. That's why I like they, you could tell me Joe Biden is up by 60 percent. 
you know, or something, it's 60, 40 or, or 75, 25, I'll still be like, I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel any relief until the end of November. That's, I refuse no. to refuse to have a, a ray of hope in my heart for that. I'm not going to feel a lot of relief with Joe Biden in office. He's a fucking creep. <laughs> we just got to get Trump out of there, man. Like, and honestly, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We still will be come election Tuesday. Here's what I like. And he just can't be, Trump can't be president because of this pandemic. We, he has proven that he cannot run the country during a pandemic. So he has to go. He has to be voted out. Well, what's your what's your thought, Phil? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, one, I do believe that Joe Biden is the best candidate to do to beat him. Because I think anyone else who's more of a mystery, like a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren or anyone else, like the Trump kind of the shots he would fire might work a little bit more than they do against Joe Biden, who's just kind of such an established old figure. Like the thing that we don't like about him is kind of the thing that saves him from a lot of Trump's attacks on him. You know, like he's also an old white guy, you know, like, and Trump, and if Trump wants to go after him for like touching women, you know, like the comeback is so easy that even Trump has been sort of hesitant to go there. And so I do think like it or not, he's not obviously no secret. He was not our first pick, but one, I, I do like Joe Biden. I mean, yeah, he has a s- sketchy record, but like I do believe his heart's in the right place generally. And I think he's made plenty of missteps and all that. But I think some of that comes with just being around for so long and the arc of, you know, progressive ideas changing over times. Like what was progressive during the Bill Clinton era is, you know, does not look progressive now. And uh, so I do still always have hope. My big thing with Joe Biden that I do like is that he's malleable to, he listens to the party in a way where it's like, Hey, you need to put a woman on the ticket. You need to do this. You need to do this. The progressives are pushing this. I think he'll do it. He's the type who's going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If that's, you know, if we have the victory in the thing, let's do it. Whereas I, I don't think he, um, will put up as big a wall. So like, I, I agree that he's not the most progressive. He's probably not the the best idea or the best ideal person to implement the policies that you and I would like to see implemented. But I think he would like not get in the way of those policies being implemented if they were like able to pass. I don't think he would, you know, stop that type of stuff. Um, So I'm fine with it. If he can beat Trump, I'm fine with it. Yeah. I want Trump out of there, but Biden, it's so much worse than, I don't know. You, you bring up, he, he's been accused of sexual assault, man. It's not just like I disagree with him because he's a centrist and maybe he's not as progressive as I want him to be. He's he's one of those old white guys. You know, he's not just another white guy. He's one of those ones. And you, we talk about like, yeah, sure, he's malleable and he promised uh, to have a woman run on the ticket, which I still, I hated that moment. I hated that moment. Uh, and what it did for Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders was the only honest one between the two of them and said, yeah, sure, a woman would be great, but I'm not just going to give you a token answer to your tokenism question. It has to be the right woman. And he was absolutely right, because what happened with Joe Biden? Right until George Floyd, that video came out. George Floyd was murdered by the police. We were probably a week and a half away from Amy Klobuchar being Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate. I don't know about that. I know she, she was on the list, certainly, but, you know. She, she was the far and away the favorite at that point. At that point, until the George I mean, Floyd according happened. to, I don't, that's like loose sourcing for me. I've, I've heard, 
her name amongst like a dozen other names like throughout the past weeks. But like, yeah, I, I know. They I know were saying, saying. They know were saying, saying she was being vetted though. Like she was the so, she was the only one who had reached that point. I'd read twelve others were vetted. Well, twelve others had been tossed in, but they were saying that she was supposed to get her ducks in a row. It was looking like it was going to be Amy Klobuchar. She was considered the presumptive favorite at that point. Well, she's not going to be it now, so I'm not going to get my panties. No, she's not. But she would. But she would have been. Like it shouldn't have taken another murder of a black man to pick the wrong candidate, like the wrong person to run, the wrong woman, like. Uh, whatever i don't want to go down that hill again. yeah I've, well, I've gotten in a lot of arguments with possess uh progressive people who say that i'm backwards for thinking the way i did that just because you said yes i promise yes any woman makes it okay like that's still tokenism i, I don't know i i don't agree with that but it, that's not the point um long story short i will vote for biden because i any it it, it has to be anybody but trump unfortunately but i'm gonna you know hold my nose while i do it basically but i i do think we'll be much better off for sure and hopefully uh he gets someone progressive in there to run with and he listens to her and i assume i'll be shocked if it isn't a woman at this point if he goes back on that promise now i mean at least i guess he's been locked into that promise i'm um, i'm fine that with that still promise, means but... he has to pick someone i, I am in theory but <laughs> Like I don't. Yeah, I, like, I I just think I just think that question deserves more than just a like yes a yes answer, and I think Bernie got a lot of shit for saying it's not enough to just say yes and appeal to tokenism. Like the last time a woman VP was <laughs> announced, it was Sarah Palin. You know, like it has to be. It still has to be the right candidate, and I. I I just think that's just playing into tokenism. That's playing into identity politics, which is something that. Democrats and people on the left have railed against for so long, and that's uh, uh, such an easy piece of bait for people on the right to accuse liberals of, and then they give it to you in a debate. That's just so dumb. But whatever. See, like I, and I'm not saying I disagree. Like I'm glad that a woman will be on the ticket, but if it was Amy Klobuchar, I wouldn't have been pumped because Amy Klobuchar sucks, and everyone knows that now because of. What happened with George Floyd? That's all. I mean, my only re- comeback to that is one, I, you know, like I didn't give a fuck about Tim Kaine, you know, like it, it being any, any person, white man or otherwise, like it needs to be the right person. And like, I, ap- I happen to think that there's a number of women. Right. That, that's, but that's ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. The right person, like man or woman, there's still plenty of white men mistakes you can make. But I also, for me, it's just kind of like reading the room. And it's like, yeah, this it's their time, man. Like we, we, we wanted to do it with Hillary, like the liberal progressive, whatever idea that it's like, look, we had, we elected a black guy. We, it's time to break the next one. We need a woman and Hillary failed. And I think since no, since a woman didn't come to the front during the nomination process, I think anyone who was going to become the nominee, if it was a man is just going to be in that position. Uh, there would have been pressure on Bernie to do the same thing. And I, I kind of view it the same way as like when Barack Obama got the lead, he, w- he wouldn't have been allowed to pick, not, not allowed, but there would have been a lot of pressure for him not to pick a, a woman or another person of color. Cause people would have been like, Hey, that's too much. Like get an old white guy attached to you. That'll like ease the other, <laughs> Hey man, you got to soften the blow. Yeah. A little yeah. The, it, like it's like, Hey man, don't, don't put, so true, don't, don't give us, don't give us two black people. Give us the old white guy attached to you just to kind of like, you know, ease the other people in there. So it's kind of yeah. a, tr- a translator, if you will. Yes. And so I've, I know it's ugly. It's just like for me playing yeah, politics it and it sucks. I know what you mean by the tokenism part, but like, 
I think, yeah, I, I think Bernie would have ended up having to pick a woman anyway. I think it was... Oh, Bert, Bernie was 100% picking. Yeah, so, of yeah. Course. But, yeah, we both, we're going to vote for Biden. I don't, you know, we're not playing coy about that. But anyway, ch- no, it sucks. Ch- can I ask, I, want, I did want to ask you about something, how you felt about something. Sure. So Tenet and Mulan keep getting pushed back. And I, I've been yes. hearing rumblings from critics who were in this kind of conflicted position of, hey, like, let's say, you know, the studio sets it up where I'm a critic and I go to a critic screening with four other critics that I know very well and we're spaced out and we see the movie and we love it. And at what point am I going to say, hey, you guys should all go see Tenet? You know, like, do I ha- is that irresponsible of me as a critic to push people to go see a movie, even though I loved it and saw it in conditions that I can't guarantee for other people? You know, like, what is the role of the critic? It's like, am I going to feel bad for giving this movie a good review? I don't know. No, I I think so. You're saying in a a world where theaters are open and Tenet is playing. But but the coronavirus is is still surging in the fall, but theaters have decided to open anyway. Yeah. So say hypothetically, like August 6th, um, theaters around the country are open and Tenet is playing and it has been reviewed and the embargo has been lifted on review so they can be published. Is it irresponsible for a critic? to give it a good review and encourage people to go see it. Yeah. Like, is it saying like, Hey, I had this experience. There's a great twist that you need to find out, but you won't see it. Until, I think, you know, yeah, like, I think it's just, uh, I think you treat it like you would a spoiler warning. I think you, I think it would, you know, be your responsibility of like, look, we all know the state of the country right now. Um, theaters are open. I guess since it is open, it is your right to go if you want to go. I I was able to see it in a very secure, safe environment, which a lot of you will not be able to do. In fact, um, <laughs> almost none of you. Yeah, and if that makes you uncomfortable, as it should, <laughs> I would suggest waiting. And, uh, you know, in a year I'll give you a spoiler-filled review. Uh, for now, this one is spoiler-free because you should not go see it yet. No, I don't know. Um, it probably should. I don't think it's irresponsible to give it a good review, but I think it. I think a, a critic should should have some type of disclaimer in there. Like, look, I didn't just go see this at a public screening, and if if a critic doesn't endorse that behavior, then I think they should say so in the review. Because yeah, the point of a review is to encourage or discourage people to go see something, right? It is particularly in theaters usually. So I think they do have a some sense of an obligation to maybe um, put their stance out there a little bit. Especially, well, especially maybe, someone yeah. like Christopher Nolan, who is always pushing the theatrical experience too. So it's like... Yeah, basically saying like, if you don't see my movie in theaters, why are you seeing my movie? Yeah, so there's like an extra pressure with a filmmaker like that, or even a Mulan, like this big epic action adventure from disney you know it's like oh i want to see that on the big screen but i don't know i guess well i remember you asked me a few weeks ago or maybe maybe six or seven weeks ago on on an episode you asked would i be comfortable at this point you know the the way the case case rates were dropping it seemed yeah Um, if if we continue down this path in mid late july would i be comfortable going to a theater and i said under certain conditions i think i would i I completely take that back at this point. I can't imagine right now going to a theater and sitting in an indoor environment with a bunch of people right now. Um, you know, there's no way. My there's concern no way too is like you can, especially in a movie theater, um, 
it's basically people don't follow those rules anyway you know so if you're implementing like hey you need to wear a mask the whole movie and only take your mask off when you're eating you know people are going to like as soon as those lights go down there's going to be a certain percentage of person who is instantly going to take their mask off or kids who aren't going to wear it for a whole movie or someone who takes it off to put their to eat their popcorn and never puts it back on like and i we shouldn't be putting that on 16 year old theater ushers to be walking in there and being like, sir, you know, like it's, it's and also think of how many times, like try to actively think about when you go to the movie and how many times over the course of a movie, you hear somebody sneeze or cough. You, you hear it every single time you go to a movie with a crowd. Yeah. Every single time. Even if it's just, There's, you swallowed water in the wrong hole, you know, like you said, that, yeah. that cough is going to scare the shit out of everyone. And you said, you know, even if they enforce rules, as far as, as far as I know, unless they've changed their position, AMC is not enforcing customers to wear masks. Yeah, they switched. They switched like the next day. Do, oh, did they? Yeah, they came to Twitter like the next day. But Good. but then they're not. But they also they also just uh, delayed their opening until July thirtieth, right? Yeah, and like the governor, at least of California, is you know he put a, a hard pause on theaters reopening and stuff like that. Yeah, bars are closed here again, which I mean, sad, but it needed to be done. Like, it just has to. People aren't going <laughs> to... People... <laughs> Americans are not going to let this disease slowly dissipate like other countries are willing to, it seems. So I think it's up to... Whatever. We don't have to go down that road. But yeah, I would say... Uh, I would say... if I Let me just say this. If I were a critic for a major publication, I would say... I would put a little note at the beginning of the review and explain how I was able to see this movie and, and what scenario allowed me to see it. And uh, just let the reader know that going forward. And then I would maybe put my own opinion in there that like if I had to go see this on an opening weekend in a theater, I expect it to be 50% full with a bunch of people who I weren't sure were wearing masks. I would not be seeing it. And that's what I would say. I feel, I mean, I, there's a part of me that almost wishes, I don't know if you saw that Broadway announced today that they are just like not doing shows this year. They like formally announced like 2020 is done guys, no Broadway this year, like not even in the fall. We're, we're not even going to like lie about it. And so that's the Broadway announced that today. And I almost kind of wish the movie theaters would do the same thing where it's like, look, we can, there's no, there's no vaccine coming this year or, you know, like we can keep pushing tenant back a month at a time and playing this game of Russian roulette with the coronavirus. But I don't know, like for, at least from my perspective, it seems like the year shot. I agree. I think, uh, I think at some point theaters are going to open um, in 2020, at least in some States and who knows for how long, but just like, you know, bars were able to open in L.A. and certain areas for a couple of weeks. I think that'll happen with theaters to some extent. Um, who knows if they'll stay open. And yeah, vaccine isn't coming this year. It's not coming until at least next summer. And honestly, with this type of respiratory virus, it's probably not coming at all. I think, I think the idea people have of this vaccine, I think it's wishful thinking because well even if there's a vaccine this found is this and, is not the family this is not the family of diseases that normally has vaccines it just isn't like that's what science says that's what history tells us this is not something we get a vaccine for this is why the flu still exists the common flu that's why we still have it yeah and even if um, even if there was one made in like say december or january it would still be another six plus months until it's like you know replicated and made mass market available and you know, distributed and all that stuff where it's so, it's so long away until even that point. 
you know, it's, it's going to be a while. So I, there's a part of me that's like, everyone just needs to kind of accept what's happening here. And I know everyone, especially with the economy businesses, you know, who really want to, especially like restaurants and all those other places are like, we need to figure this out. But you know, like I was talking to my daughter today and I was like, so have you heard anything about school? And she's like, nope. And I was like, I don't, you know, I wonder when they're going to announce, like if they're going back in the fall, because I just can't imagine, especially in places like, you know, middle of the country or Texas or Florida, some of these states that have resisted masks. I have a hard time imagining that come September, they're going to be okay with their kids wearing masks eight hours a day at school. I feel like that's just not going to happen. No, I don't think it is. I think a vast majority of the country will probably have online schooling in the fall. That that would be my, um, that would be my guess right now. I mean, it's ultimately it's gonna it's gonna come down to society is gonna have to break the back of the virus, or it's gonna break the back of society. Like that's what we're seeing all around the world. That's what we're seeing in certain area like places like New York and New England, where the virus hit hardest in America early on. You know, we're seeing strict measures happened and they're seeing the positive effect of that, right? And in other places like Florida and Texas and Arizona where it took a little while to get there and they rushed to reopen, we're seeing the downfall of that and the insane rush of new cases taking place. So it's it's up to us. Like we, we're either going to beat back the virus or we're not. Like nothing, no vaccine, nothing like that is going to come and save us. We can't just wait it out and let it die. Like active measures need to be taken to fight it back. And that's the only way if people who are in such a hurry to reopen, I understand and I know how frustrating it is and it sucks. But the only way we're going to be able to do it long term is to follow strict measures. And that means we got to wear masks. We got to social distance. You just have to wear masks. Like this shouldn't be such a fucking yeah, you know, you know what I read it today. Should be such an issue. I, I'm I'm blanking on where I read it, uh, which news site I read it on. But Hong Kong, one of the most densely populated um, metropolises in the entire world, with like a huge population, has only had I think four coronavirus deaths, and it's pretty contained there. And when asked about how this was possible, the officials said we have a 95 percent compliance rate with masks. Like everyone wears them. It's not argued yeah. about and. Um, they, and and it was even noted in the article, the 5% that don't are Europeans and Americans that are living there who do not, who are not complying with it. And it was just, yeah, it's, it's insane. You know, it's just like, yeah, Hong Kong, you know, who, which is more dense than New York, it has four, you know, and all it took was wearing masks. And I'm sure they have other steps. And, you know, like in Asia, they've had more of these incidents and they are a little bit better prepared, which you would think would lead to our government reaching out to them being like, Hey, what are some helpful tips? But no, none of that. No, and I think it, and that that's one of the 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 fact that this mask issue became politicized to me is a clear example of why um, why right now we need a leader in office who is liberal. And I don't always think that. Like I'm not. Uh, oh, I just vote on the left. Da 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 da. That's not. That's not how I live my life. But yeah, the, uh, an issue like that cannot be politicized because. Uh, it still stuns me to talk to some people and to realize some people think it's an infringement on their their born right to choose to wear or not wear a mask. It's a matter of public safety. It, it just is. It's not about you. It's about others. It's about the civilization, the society that you live in. And 
Sometimes you have to sacrifice certain things you want to do. That's why you can't walk into a restaurant without pants on. You know, it's not it's not even the same choice as wearing a seatbelt. It's not like people people are, are even trying to compare it to that. Like, hey, you agree to wear a seatbelt. Just wear a mask like you wear a seatbelt. It's not even that extreme. Wearing a seatbelt is more extreme. Is is an actual greater infringement on your civil liberties because that is a measure aimed at protecting yourself. The masks is to protect other people. It's insane that this has become politicized. Yeah, I was watching Face the Nation and uh, John Dickerson was interviewing Mike Pence and he was just could not get a straight answer out of him. He was like, you're telling us that this is important. You're telling us all these amazing steps you're taking. But like the president's not saying that he's muddling the message and stating complete lies. Like, how do you account for that? And just watching the diarrhea that he spewed of just words, you know, that meant nothing kind of these like empty platitudes. And I was just like, Oh, what a robot. You can't even, you know, poor John Dickerson. He tried. I love John Dickerson, but it was, it was. So when you get, when you get the average, uh, Republican, you know, one-on-one or something like that, or in, in a long-form interview. Generally, you know, let's just specify it to the coronavirus outbreak, right? Generally, they say, you know, even if you don't agree with everything they're saying, they're normally in the same universe, right? Like they'll they'll agree, they'll defer to the latest. Um, releases in science and what we've learned from the virus. Yeah, and then it comes to Trump, and they're they they're just completely unwilling to renounce things that he said, or even though everything they've said in the interview up to that point directly contradicts something, some bullshit Trump spewed, and they're very hesitant to go against it. Yeah, like even now, I I think. I was going to say, even Sorry, though, but, yeah, even in the interview, it's like, well, you're saying how important it is that you, we wear masks and follow these protocols, but Trump just yesterday said, you know, slow or how important testing is. And he's like, Trump just said, slow the testing down. And he said he wasn't kidding about that. Like, how can you account for that with what you're saying right now? And Pence had no answer for that. He's just dodging, yeah. dodging, dodging. So why, why do you, do you, I think as soon as Trump is out of office, there's going to be this hallelujah moment with most Republicans were like, they, a bunch of them say like, oh, we never liked him. Thank God he's gone. Oh, I can't fucking wait to, they're all going to, there's going to be an avalanche of people who I'm just like, go fuck yourself, Lindsey Graham. Absolutely. But do you think, do you truly think Trump has dirt on all of these guys? No, they're afraid of. Do you afraid think it of, comes down to something that simple? I think it's, I think they're afraid of his popularity within the base. I, I think that's all it is. And, and they also, they're scared of a tweet. They're scared of being made fun of. I don't really know. And they also... I think some of them approach it as, well, he's, if you approach him the right way, you can get what you want out of him, which is, I think, how a lot of them have approached it, where they're like, yeah, he's just a means to an end to get this other stuff that we actually want to do done. So, like, while, so if, while I, he's if I'm just all, a sycophant in public behind the scenes, I'll get all this shit. Yeah, like, all Mitch McConnell cares about is the 200 judges they've appointed in the four years since, yeah. you know, uh, that since he's been appointed uh, or elected. That's... You know, that's the kind of stuff they care about that's going on behind the scenes. That's like we're, you know, we're being distracted by the bigger stuff, by these tweets. And they're kind of like, yeah, but we're, you know, putting two Republicans on the Supreme Court. You know, federal we're sending 400 federal judges that are now Republican white men. Um, I saw the report. There was no woman, apparently, or no person of color of those 400 judges. And it's just or there was like two women, I think, of the 
amount. And it was just an insane numbers of things that they're putting into place that are actually hurting people on local levels immediately. These aren't just like laws that they're putting right. into place. These are people that are locking people up and giving them the wrong sentences that you don't agree with, or, you know, the letting the white kid go, get away free. Like these are the people that are being put in office quietly under our noses while, you know, most people aren't paying attention. And that's what they're kind of like, that's more important to us. We're getting our tax cuts. We're getting our judges. We're getting our Supreme court seats. That's, you know, we'll deal with the racist tweets later. Yeah. We're gerrymandering districts and we're filling judicial appointments. That's, that's Mitch McConnell's goal. That's why whenever you see someone scream, like don't be distracted by Trump, the real problem is Mitch McConnell. That's what they mean by that. And there's definitely a lot of truth to that, for sure. Paul um, Paul Ryan all, left all as the, soon as the tax bill, the tax cuts passed. He said, this is my life's work. It's accomplished. And he passed it and left immediately. He was like, I'm done. Yeah. Because um, he's a coward. He is a, he's a douchebag who loved Rage Against the Machine and Rage Against the Machine told him to fuck off. Um, another thing that you, you did mention in your, uh, your intro, actually, something we could talk about that's a little positive. You mentioned... Uh, filling judge seats and putting two Republicans on the Supreme Court. We all know Mitch McConnell's, the the thing that he credits as his greatest moment during Obama's presidency was not allowing him to fill that vacant Supreme Court seat. Oh, yes, we've had but some pretty big decisions in the last... We've had, some, we've had some pretty landmark decisions from the Supreme Court, which, <laughs> which led to Trump saying, I don't think the Supreme Court likes me in a tweet, which was one of the most satisfying tweets he's ever sent out. Um the, the way I saw someone, someone I follow, uh, a member of uh, actually the Coyote Lake crew, um, uh, one of the one of the guys who was uh, the head of the costume department for Coyote Lake uh, um, posted something on Instagram. I think it was him. If it's not, I apologize. But basically saying uh, it, it looks like... Uh, Justice John Roberts is one landmark decision away from being a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> that, really made, that really made me laugh because we're, I think we're like three for three in the last two weeks on Supreme Court rulings. Yeah, there was one today, the Louisiana court, I believe. I'd have to look up the details, but yes, there was obviously the the DACA stuff and the um, uh, Equal Rights Amendment stuff. Those were the two big ones. And there was another one today that I was about... Um, Abortion rights. That's what I remember. It was about the the, yeah, the that, needing a doctor's permission slip, I believed, in order to receive a, an abortion. I believe that's what it was. I, I'm sorry for fucking up the details. Uh, yeah, basically there there was um, excuse me for I try to mute all that stuff with my allergies. Um, Do you have Corona? Oh God, don't don't even joke. Um. For anti-abortion activists, Monday's Supreme Court ruling against the Louisiana law delivered a stinging and surprising setback, but perhaps not for long. So they're saying that this ruling, while it was a win for um, pro-choice people and a loss for um, the anti-abortion movement, they're saying this could set up uh, down the pipe stuff that could be a bigger challenge to Roe v. Wade. Um, What that is... So the Louisiana case that was in discussion with today's ruling was a 2014 law that required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Uh, It was never envisioned as a way to upend Roe v. Wade. It was one small piece of a broader strategy to restrict abortion through myriad state laws that put together could chip away at the overall process. 
Um, so yeah, uh, but whatever, a win is a win, especially in the Supreme Court as it is currently modeled. So, you know, take them as you can get them. There are not a lot of good news stories these days. Yeah, and by and that movie, by the way, that I mentioned um, earlier this year, one of, it's been one of the higher reviewed movies of the year, uh, never rarely, sometimes always, that is basically about a woman who is trying to seek an abortion, but these like myriad of strange, like doctors need to do this or they're required to do this. Like it's about how hard uh, it is just to, you know, get through that system. If you're a person with little means, um, and low support from your family. And so, yeah, so just like you said, it's not about dismantling Roe v. Wade because they know that's a bigger thing. They're going to try and dismantle it and just make it near impossible without dismantling the law. Exactly. That's like um, they want to suppress voter rights like we just saw. Um, It was in Kentucky, right, this past week where they locked the – well, first off, there's a a largely Democratic um, county that they knew would be a bunch of votes against Mitch McConnell, and they locked the doors to the voting station right at 6 p.m., even though there are hundreds of people in line, and they just refused to leave and called an injunction and the court passed an emergency injunction and they uh ripped off the locks and allowed them to funnel into this i think it was a gymnasium where the the voter uh house was and it was just a fucking parade of black people a parade of minorities that, that they were trying to withhold from voting it's just so abject and that was a county where they had i think they had cut literally hundreds of voting places around the county it's just they they try to suppress in so many ways they know they can't do it openly so they do shit like that they do shit like cut voting stations in poorer areas or more left-leaning areas and they try to gerrymander districts which is the entire reason why trump is our president at micro targeting uh, gerrymandered districts so he could lose the popular vote by three million and still win the electoral college i mean it was a brilliant strategy uh, If I were, let's say Joe Biden, because there's a huge down ballot um, sweep and they take back and have a a filibuster proof Senate and and then take and have the House still, um, which is a possibility from what, you know, if you're looking at polls, it's a possibility. We'll see if it actually happens. But if that did happen, what I would my biggest dream, I know there's so many other things to take care of, but I would love for him just to be like, hey, the first thing we're doing is making Election Day a national holiday where everyone's required to be off work. And we're going to put the voting registration and voting stations in every college uh, or or early voting stations at every college across the country um, where like students have access to absentee ballots and you know, voter stations and they make it as easy as possible to early vote for all students on campus. And those holidays are, you know, work-free days because we just need to make it easier to vote in this country. And it's insane. It's insane how hard it is to vote. And also subtly, I know as a Democrat that if we did that, we would never lose again. It's very true. It really is. We, we have the numbers. We just don't have the spirit and foresight. (laughs) Yeah, that's my advice uh, to Joe you Biden. You know what I would do if, if, I'm I, a political... if I were... Go ahead, yeah. Okay, that's your advice to Biden. Mine would be Coca-Cola in every fountain. Woo! Yeah, you know, Trump's a big soda guy. Like, there's all these... I was looking at it today. There's all these photos of him with, like, a Diet Coke and an ice, like, on his, on the in the Oval Office. I don't know why it made me laugh earlier. Because he's fucking trash. <laughs> eating McDonald's. He is, he's just eating McDonald's he's in there. Just, you know, probably missing the trash can with a wrapper. 
he's the definition of what America is right now, which is a third world country wearing a Gucci belt. <laughs> that yeah. is Donald Trump. <laughs> that is America right now, as we're seeing the failure of how we're handling the coronavirus. And with certain, like, uh, what we're going to talk about with Spike and when the levees broke and they end up going to the Netherlands and seeing the infrastructure in place to handle floods and they're like, holy shit, this is embarrassing trying to tell them what we do here in America. Yeah, yeah. Third world country with wearing a Gucci belt, man. Well, that is, as, love it. that is as good a segue as I can think of. We have talked already for almost an hour just about, you know, the crazy world, but a couple weeks ago. I didn't even get to the NBA. Oh, shit, 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 shit. shit. Um, that's all right. We'll save it. We, we got a month. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, NBA, I guess I would file in the same thing as the Broadway theater thing where I'm very concerned about it just generally as an activity. Um, I'll just say six, 16 players just tested positive and they're supposed to start up in a month. Uh, okay. On to Spike Lee. On to Spike Lee. All right. So two weeks ago, we, while reviewing The Five Bloods, his new film that's available on Netflix, we took a deep dive into... Some of the, his bigger titles, we talked about, uh, you know, we briefly covered Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing and some of his, you know, bigger titles that you might have heard of and covered him in a more general sense. And we wanted, since he has such a big filmography, we wanted to take a little bit more time to celebrate him because he's touched on so many things from documentaries to filmed plays to uh, short films to four-part, four you know, epic documentaries to feature films that are independent and shot on hand handheld you know, digital video to Epic shot on 35, you know, he's done everything and we couldn't talk about it all in one episode. So we're going to take some time and dive into some titles that we spent some time with specifically some of the documentaries and smaller titles. Um, this go around Tom, tell me what you watched. Well, I wanted to focus on, uh, first things first. I wanted to focus on his documentary work. Um, so the two biggest titles I watched, which I know you watch as well, were the, the four-hour epic When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, which is Spike Lee's um, investigation and just document um, for historical importance of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and its impact in New Orleans and beyond. And I also watched Four Little Girls, his 1997 documentary about the church bombings in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, which came out. The documentary came out in 1997. Um, I also watched uh, all of his music videos and short films that were available on um, online. Excuse me. Uh, I'm just looking up his filmography right now. And then I also, <laughs> you'll laugh at this, I was able to watch half of uh, Passover. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, while I was driving home, I kind of just let it play on my phone since it's set up like a play. We, um, Spike is a super interesting guy because he has a bunch of feature films. He's acted in a bunch. He's directed some episodes of television. He's directed documentary features and shorts. He's directed music videos. And he's also directed a bunch of stage shows. And Passover is one that I actually thought was an adaptation of a play, but it's actually just... Um, a filming of the play itself, which I didn't know. So I watched that as well, which is, I don't know. What do you, what do you call a film stage show? It's not a, is it a documentary? It's a dogville. Is it? It's a dogville, I guess. No. Cause he does cut to the audience occasionally. Um, um I mean, it's to like to like break the fourth wall. It, I mean, it's, I it's both similar to 
what we talked about when we were talking about Frankenstein. You know, it's you know, it's like you're just watching the right. show, but I mean, he might kind of break away from that a little bit. But like, you know, if you go and watch, he like I mentioned to you off, you know, he did John Linguizamo, John Linguizamo Freak, which was a one man show that he did in front of an audience, and that's largely that. And he did like the original Kings of Comedy, which is a stand up comedy thing with uh four comedians and you know the, those are just stage shows i don't know that you're going to get a ton of personality out of them from him as a filmmaker as much as they are subjects that he is interested in and that kind of feed into his overall oeuvre, oeuvre whatever you want to say you know oeuvre. Oeuvre. yes so I don't, um, I don't know what to call them but yeah they're like they're stays i guess just stage shows yeah um so and then uh, lastly, the other things I watched, uh, I rewatched for the first time since I was a child. I think you talked about it last week or two weeks ago. Sorry, uh, get on the bus. Yeah. And um, the another thing that I watched, which he did not direct, but he plays a big part in, is an episode of the ESPN Thirty for Thirty documentary series called Winning Time, which is all about Reggie Miller's rivalry with the New York Knicks. Oh, and, and getting pissed off at Spike. Yeah, I've seen that. Spike Lee, yes. Um, Spike Lee plays a big part. Um, he also, you know, he has a bunch of shorts, uh, including two that just came out this year. One is called New York, New York, which is kind of a love letter to the city uh, during the, the massive outbreak when New York became the, for a little while, for a few weeks, it was the coronavirus epicenter of the entire world. Um, and he shot some footage there. It's a little three-minute three, three video. And then... Um, Another short called Three Brothers, Radio Rahim, Eric Garner, and George Floyd, which is a 90-second short um, that just compiles um, very depressing footage of Eric Garner and George Floyd being murdered by police while Radio Rahim, his indomitable character from Do the Right Thing, is killed as well by police, choked out in very much the same way. Uh, so that's what I watched. What about you, Phil? Um, I, I was looking at his filmography. I actually didn't know that he had directed another short called I Can't Breathe in 2014, which is uh, footage of the chokehold death of Eric Garner at the hands of New York City Police Department and interviews with acquaintances of his. So I didn't I didn't know that existed, yeah. but um, I guess that's probably like a nice, um, uh, not sequel or prequel, but like, you know, a twin film with the three brothers that just came out. Um, uh, yeah, I watched, um, last week I had, I had watched some of his earlier stuff like, uh, school days and jungle fever and clockers and get on the bus. And, you know, you know, we talked some about those and I wanted to kind of dive into his later work. And I, I specifically wanted to get into a couple titles that I hadn't revisited in a long time. And I remember when I was young, I didn't know what to make of them. And I had a sneaking suspicion that I might have a different idea of them now. So one of them was Summer of Sam, which I had not seen, I think since 1999 or 2000, whenever it came on video. And, um, I, I rented, she hate me, but I didn't have time to watch it. Um, okay. Cause I was, I'm like, I wanted to kind of, I really wanted to find time for she hate me and girl six, because those I think are perhaps his two most, uh, you know, critically lambasted films. Um, I also wanted to watch The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and I ended up watching The Blood of Jesus, the original like one from the 30s that he's referencing, because I wanted to watch that first, and then I just never got around to watching The Sweet Blood of Jesus. So anyway. Interesting. Yeah, so I watched Four Little Girls. I watched um, uh, When the Levees Broke. I watched Summer of Sam. I watched Bamboozled Today, and I watched Miracle at St. Anna, his World War II movie that I wanted to revisit after The Five Bloods. Um, because I remember that there were things I liked about it, but I didn't remember enough of it to know if it was like maybe a secret masterpiece that I'd overlooked. 
Um, it's not. But <laughs> okay, I was, I was I didn't want to ask right away and like spoil it, but I was so excited. I was really hoping you were like, dude, yes. No, <laughs> unfortunately, I was watching it and I was like, oh no, it's it's okay. Um, it's okay. We have we have to five bloods now, so it's all good. The thing I did flip on though is I, I'm pretty crazy for Summer of Sam at this point. I thought that was pretty great. Dude, didn't I? We had this conversation like a week ago. Yeah. I, I hadn't watched it since since I was younger, and I think I probably fell into that trap of like when I was a kid thinking it was like going to be more about the Son of Sam killer, and I was like, what's all this bullshit about John Leguizamo and these Italians and this all the talking dog made me laugh, you know, that type of stuff. That's all I remembered about it. Um, but revisiting it, I, I still think it's flawed, but it's just it's going after so much. It's kind of capturing like the era of CBGB and the, the birth of punk, and there were so many images from it that both were like, from a technical standpoint, very Spike Lee-ish, but the actual images that he was presenting of like were of cultures that I don't think you typically associate with Spike Lee. And I was pretty like thrilled by it. Um, and it was co-written by Michael Imperioli, which I noticed right away, um, which made me laugh thinking of Michael Imperioli's like experiences as a screenwriter feeding into him as Christopher on The Sopranos. And that, I actually didn't know he was a, a writer. I don't think I, I think I'd kind of heard that at some point, but yeah, he, he that was, I look, that's really, there's only one other film that he co-wrote. The, the, it's Summer of Sam's the only one. But I, I just imagined young, like, Christopher pitching his Summer of Sam movie when I was thinking about Mr. Michael Imperioli. Or Spider, as I okay, sometimes so, call him. So for those who uh, were not privy to this conversation, which would be everyone besides Phil and I, we had a text conversation where he sent me his list of uh, Spike Lee, you know, in a general order. And the thing I pointed out was that I thought Summer of Sam was way too low. And he said, you know, I haven't seen it for 20 years, but this is just my recollection. I plan on rewatching it. So I was very hopeful that you would um, find something to love about it. Because like you were just saying, I think what really makes it work and interesting is it really is a portrait of New York City in a certain at a certain point in time. Yeah, and it's another heat wave how film. How varied and kind of wild. Yeah, it's really, it's like a martial law city, you know, in a lot of ways, which I really love about that movie. Did it Did it move up? Did you uh, yeah, yeah, I made a, move it around uh, in your order? Uh, my orders changed on a number of things um, that I watched this week, actually. So a few titles got shuffled around, especially in the top five, actually. Um, but I, I'd have to pull it up where exactly I moved Summer to Sam to... But, um, you know, for me, yeah, Summer of Sam was kind of what we were talking about with um, The Five Bloods and some of his other big epics where we're kind of like, yeah, not all of this works. And I don't, for some reason, I don't expect it to. It's like, I just so admire his style and how much he's just kind of going after. So, like, for me, like, I loved that something like Summer of Sam is so clearly about things that I don't know that I thought were important to him as a filmmaker, but you clearly see it as this very specific point like you were saying in this time period in new york clearly a city that he loves and i was watching interviews with him afterwards after i watched it and he was talking about how he remembers that summer he remembers um there's so much going on with you know the 44 caliber killer and baseball and there's all this like catholic the heat yeah the heat there's blackouts going on um it's the era of like i was saying cbgb's and punk and studio 54 and disco and it's like this very specific like select you know year and summer that i'm sure meant a lot to him and he was able to bring so much to and i think most people who are disappointed at disappointed and it probably wanted like more of a zodiac like film i would assume more of a kind of like serial killer type movie where this movie is more about 
the feeling of violence being in the air and everyone being scared and the kind of the heat contributing to that paranoia and the growing sense of, you know, mistrust amongst the community and how people who are others like Adrian Brody's kind of like male stripper punk, you know, kind of new wave guy who doesn't fit in with this old Italian neighborhood. And you just see, yeah, like Spike Lee, it's, it's all the themes that he's kind of tackled in all these other films, but yeah, watching it again, I was like, yeah, I can see why this didn't work for me when I was 14. I didn't quite know what to make of this, but, um, yeah, it's great. New York City, 1977. Is that Richie? Satin and guys. You come back to the neighborhood looking like a freak. You're supposed to be okay with that. A time of endless possibilities. You want to be my dog? A naughty girl. And serial hysteria. Double homicide. Police received a letter from the 44 caliber killer calling himself the son of Sam. What happened? I just saw the body. I am the monster. Beelzebub. <laughs> In one hot summer. He's a victim six and seven. In one neighborhood. Vinny saw the dead bodies last night. Saw the bodies. Between friends and lovers. The son of Sam Killer, who has been targeting young women, has caused panic-stricken brunettes to dye their hair blonde. I feel like I'm cheating on you with you. Anyone is a target. If I if I have any hesitation about it, it's just kind of that everyone except for Mira Sorvino is pretty fucking awful. Like, there's not really a, a nice character in the movie. So it was actually, like, quite... I was like, man, I really hate all these characters. They're all kind of shitty to each other. Um, there wasn't a lot of people. Ooh, who, interesting. Like Adrian Brody, maybe a little bit, I guess, but I didn't feel as bad for him. That's more of my like Adrian Brody problem than I think the characters. But yeah, he kind of sucks. <laughs> so it just as a as a human being, he kind of sucks. Um, that's interesting because I feel like for me. I, I also have not seen Summer of Sam in a very long time, and I didn't rewatch it for this episode, but I've always been a fan of it. And my recollection of it is I was just always kind of enraptured by it. Like, it was one of those movies that I've probably seen front to back, like, twice, but I've seen large chunks of it. There's a lot of montages on cable and punk many, yeah. many times. Yeah, and that's, that's what I remember so much is just, like, how vibrant and vivid it is. You know, the the montages of the city in particular always really stuck out to me. And then you add stuff like the talking dog in the apartment. And I'm like, this movie is just fucking bizarre and fun, but it's really dark and morbid. The thing is, though, you mentioned how none of the characters are very likable. I don't know. I don't have that memory. And I feel like that is a critique of a lot of movies that I have nowadays that really draw me out of movies. So I want now I'm curious and a little more hesitant to rewatch it because i'm wondering if that'll stick out more and will make me uh yeah like the movie a little bit less it's not yeah i guess it's not like it's not too much of a spoiler uh for a 20 year old movie but you know it's like do the right thing everything goes to shit at the end and you you're kind of like it's complicated because you kind of love all those characters and you've spent the day with them whereas this one when everything goes to shit you're like yeah they were they were awful to start and now they've only gotten worse and yeah, like John Linguizamo's character goes from just a cheating, uh, selfish asshole to an even worse drug addict, selfish asshole who, you know, is falling apart. So it's, you know, it's kind of a sad tragedy. It's hard, but, you know, it's hard to watch. And I guess like that's not necessarily, you know, I'm sure that's what he was going for. It's not supposed to be an easy, fun, breezy summer. It's supposed to be about the tension and the heat and it breaking people down. So, you know, I like, yeah, it was an epic and I was like oh man I can see how this was misunderstood but I would definitely recommend it so just before we get too tangled up in there let's let's dive into some of the the big docs because I feel like we have a lot to say about those two so what do you want to do when the levees or four little girls first what kind of jumped out to you 
Um, I well, I feel like the the big conversation piece is when the levees broke. That's just um, to to me. I feel like that's the most fascinating documentary he's ever made. I think that's one of when you look back in Spike's career and you talk about his major works. And I think we will always talk about do the right thing first when we talk about Spike Lee. But um, I think after that, you know, is Malcolm X. And I think when the levees broke is right there as well. Um, So to me, that's the biggest conversation to have. Uh, I don't know if you want to start with that or if you want to dive into Four Little Girls first and then uh, leave the big meal for after. It's up to you. Um, well, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start just by saying I agree with you in that the biggest change for me on all the watches that I had was I watched When the Levees Broke when it aired in 2006, but that was a year after Katrina. And I think it was mm-hmm. it was all still so fresh and kind of on the news regularly at that point that I think I maybe probably took it for granted. And watching it this time it was like oh this is yeah one of the greatest documentaries ever made it's it's so important and so important so it's like you said it's uh for me four little girls in my memory was the the more vital kind of documentary or like the most important thing he'd made but revisiting them i love four little girls still incredible but when the levees broke was a real like holy shit like i forgot how incredible this is and how essential this is essential it's just like everyone needs to watch this it's not just about race or anything kind of like how four little girls is about that movement and that time in history i feel like this is when the levees broke becomes about bigger ideas about our entire country and everything so it's an oj made in america type of documentary yeah so uh, how about Um, we'll loop back to that though how about we go back to four little girls and kind of like yeah yeah i was just gonna say that sounds good so four little girls for those who don't know uh it came out in 1997 uh like i said earlier in the the pod in this episode, it's about the murder of four African-American girls at the hands of a domestic terrorist attack in Birmingham, Alabama. The four girls were Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Rosamond Robertson. They were all between the ages of 11 and 14, uh, four black girls. Now, this was at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, in a predominantly black neighborhood, and this was a racist uh, racially motivated attack. Um, this was in the height of the civil rights movement. Birmingham, Alabama was at the epicenter of a lot of the activity of this 1960 civil rights movement. Um, obviously, segregation was happening in Birmingham, Alabama. George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, did a lot of his bullshit stunts in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and... Uh, um, in at this point in 1963, uh, Martin Luther King, his I Have a Dream speech was less than three weeks old at the time, just to give you a little bit of, um, of a setting and a place in time for when this bombing took place. His I Have a Dream speech was in late August of that year, and then in mid-September, I believe September 15th or 13th, I think September 15th uh, is when this bombing took place. And the documentary, it's... Um, it's feature length, you know, it was a theatrical release, even though it was uh, produced and distributed by HBO, they ended up seeing the final product and decided, oh, we should put this in theaters and try to reach as wide of an audience as possible. Um, so it's 102 minutes long, it's under two hours. It's not something like when the levees broke that you have to make a whole day for or something and you can watch it like you would any other movie. It was nominated for uh, the best Oscar documentary, which puts Spike Lee in very rarefied air as a uh, narrative you know legendary filmmaker 
who has been Oscar nominated in both documentary and narrative work, which is kind of a cool um, side note. I was looking at the Oscars for for 1997, Phil. And yeah, I was, I was gonna. Not I was curious did, who beat it, but I wasn't. I was scared to look. Uh, it's not who beat it, but there is another film that was nominated, which is a documentary about Ayn Rand ah. <laughs> that I was reading the reviews of. And even at the moment in 1997, everyone was like, this movie sucks. <laughs> like, even if you're an Ayn Rand stand, there's nothing interesting here. This is all flat and boring. Thankfully. Oh God. Can you imagine if Ayn Rand beat four little girls? Um, the, the winner that year, I'm blanking on the name now. I had looked it up on my phone earlier, but, uh, it is a World War II documentary. The Long Way Home? Um, the Long Way Home. Yeah, I think it's about the, the Jewish resettlement, right? And the the um, the formation of the nation of Israel. I don't I, I don't know, but that sounds sounds like a that sounds like a best Oscar or or best documentary. Yeah. So Four Little Girls starts off, in my opinion, very powerfully with a, a song um, performed by Joan Baez, written by her sister-in-law, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, the song is called Birmingham Sunday. And uh, Joan Baez sings over it, and she name-checks the four girls who die, the names of the girls who I just mentioned, while Spike Lee kind of gives us this montage of the town of Birmingham, the grave sites of the four girls, um, we get a little backstory about what happened and what I really liked about this. I'll pass the mic over to you uh, right now. But before I do, what the thing that I really liked about this was that the first thing we do after this song, Phil, is we learn, we start to learn about the girls and their families as opposed to its place and context in American history and in the civil rights movement. Yes, I actually, that was my major takeaway was appreciating that it was in, in many, it's called four little girls and it's about them. It's about giving them life because I feel like, you know, you hear, Oh yeah, the, the bomb went off in the church and that's what kind of really helped kickstart the next wave of the civil rights movement. And that was a big moment. And I think a lot of people know that general fact, but you know, the, even the title, you know, four little girls for some people, that's all it is. And I think this documentary, like you said, it's very powerful opening. I was kind of getting choked up in the first like two minutes and, yeah. um, yeah, and it's just about giving. It's about so you learn about who these girls were, and it's like putting a name and uh, putting a face and giving them personality and introducing you to their family members and their family members' memories of them. So that when you walk away, it's like these are four beautiful, innocent girls who were taken from us by awful people. And I think it asked you as an audience to take that personal story and reflect on how that ref, you know how that goes to a macro level of the way the country treats black people or how we at that time, uh, how we were enforcing laws, how we were treating people who were um, just trying to pray or be treated equally. You know, it, it kind of takes the more personal approach, whereas when the levies, I think, is a bigger, you know, macro approach. But um, yeah, for a little girl, it's just, yeah, like you said, it's personal, but it does give you historical context and will help you understand. Yeah, um, for sure. But yes, I agree with you. The personalization of those, children is the kind of the most essential part of the documentary for me that cold autumn morning no i saw the sun and nanny may collins her number was one in an old baptist church there was 
Yeah, uh, that's what I loved about it. So it eventually does get into where we are in the civil rights movement, and it interviews a bunch of activists who were kind of as talking heads and historians of this point in time in American history. And uh, the the impression that you get while watching it, so this the bombing takes place, and like I said, September of 63. Now, at this point in the civil rights movement, I think, and what the document, documentary is trying to say is that there's maybe a lot of revisionist history that the 1960s was just full of a continuously growing movement of black rights that eventually led to the first civil rights bill in 64, then the the next one in 65, and the next one in 68, and it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Right. And what this, doc, what this documentary is really trying to point out while simul- simultaneously giving uh, life and individuality to these four girls and their families um, is saying like, no, at this point in 63, people were burnt out. It was really uh, just a, a, a small dedicated group of people who were really committed to causing trouble and making noise and sticking to this fight because most people were bored. Most, most people were sick of us. They didn't want to hear about it anymore. They were comfortable. They were doing their thing. And it wasn't until around this time that they were able to um, basically there, there's a whole section in the documentary about how they were able to utilize uh, young people. They were able to utilize students and generate a sense of passion and activism within high school kids to march and start protesting with them. And because of the actions of the incredibly racist people at the state level in Alabama's government, like George Wallace, which we have to talk about. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the with George Wallace. George, well, yeah. well, we will get to it because, oh my God. But there's a big section about the, um, the he's, I guess his official title is the Commissioner of Fire and Safety in Birmingham. But he, for all intents and purposes, he's the police commissioner. His name was Eugene Connor, and they would call him the Bull. And he was just, apparently he was just known as this complete, like off the rails racist dingbat like he was just an idiot who hated black people like even the black people in the documentary they like laugh about it they're like man he hated us and they're like <laughs> they're like he 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 like there are races and then there's the bull and this guy we knew would fuck up and they talk about like you know Birmingham became one of the major players of the civil rights movement because people weren't motivated anymore and we knew we had this guy, the bull at the head of police, and he loved to show off the dogs and he loved to show off the fire hoses and he just wanted an excuse. He wanted an excuse. And we knew if we could incite violence here that we could get the movement going and we could really spread it out across the entire South and really activate the people up North. And they utilized a lot of the kids and they utilized their idealism and their activism against this guy, against Eugene Bull Connor. And that brought George Wallace down to Birmingham and that put his foot in the sand as the governor of their state to say that segregation is going to last forever. This this completely, oh, whatever, this, this, this gross idea of segregation. 
So they had they actually played these racists against themselves. They appealed to their racism and actually stoke those fires, which is really it's great. It's so satisfying to watch and say like like yeah, not only did we get this movement going and we kept building on it and building on it until we got laws passed that gave us more rights, but we were able to do it by stoking your own racist fears. Like we were able to actually beat you in a mind game. It was not just the game of you know this is right and eventually we won people on onto our side. Like we tricked you racist assholes. And that part of the movie to me is so fucking satisfying to watch. Yeah. So all right, let's talk about George Wallace. So they bring him in. <laughs> Please. <laughs> they, oh my God. Um so uh, you just kind of gave some background about who George Wallace was for those of you who don't know. And so basically in the documentary, a very old and decrepit George Wallace is being interviewed and he essentially spends the entire interview with his black like chauffeur, assistant, aide, whatever it is, a nurse, whatever it is he this guy is to him. Ed. Ed. <laughs> and he's just like, this is my best black friend. He's like, Come here. Come here. And he like <laughs> brings him over and he just can't stop talking about how, you know, he, he knows he's friends with black people and he can't be a racist. I go, and, I go, every, I go everywhere with it all over the world with it. Uh, yeah. I can't. Ed, come here. Ed, and then Ed comes in and has the most horrified fucking look. It's Oh my God. It's so awkward. And it happens twice. It yeah. happens twice. I laugh so hard every time Spike, he shows up. I, I like, I, I'm watching this scene and I can't, and, Part of me is going like, how can you not just strangle George Wallace at trying to pull this tokenism bullshit in front of your face, Spike Lee? But I give Spike so much credit. He is so smart because he doesn't say anything. He just continues to roll the camera and does not interrupt this moment. So the first time he does it, he says, George Wallace literally invokes that I'm not racist, I have a black friend thing. And he has a black guy with him who clearly doesn't <laughs> like him. Like they, yeah. they are not close at all all so he calls this black guy over ed good over where is he i have a black friend where is he he literally <laughs> says that and then and then they bring ed over and they just hold hands for a second and ed looks at the camera fucking mortified he is so uncomfortable like he's he's being tokenized yeah and he knows he's it. like get me out of here and man. george wallace george wallace can't even look him in the eye and they don't even converse like he brings him over and holds they hold hands for two seconds but they don't look at each other and then Ed stands there, and George Wallace just looks away like, I'm done with you, I guess. And so Ed just slowly backs off the camera. And then we cut to the movie again, and then 10 minutes later, we cut back to George Wallace because we've seen footage of him from the 1960s acting like a racist asshole. So then it cuts back to this interview, and he does the same thing. He brings up Ed again and says, Ed, where are you? Come here. I got to show you Ed. I go everywhere with this guy. <laughs> And then he holds his hand and then just looks away again. And Ed just stands there for 10 seconds, so confused, and eventually just walks away. And Spike Lee never says a fucking word. It is so sad. Oh, it's beautiful. It's one of the greatest things I have ever seen in a movie. Yeah, there's only Seriously. yeah, there's only one more really awkward thing in the movie. And that's when uh, Bill Cosby is interviewed and called an educator. Oh God! <laughs> when it, when yeah, he came, some, some things don't age well. Yeah, when he came up, I was like, "Oh, Bill!" And then like, w then the lower third being educator, I was like, "Jesus, educator." Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's not Spike Lee. Doesn't uh, George Lucas tinker with his films? I guess otherwise he would change that. I uh, there here's there's another um, thought I had about this movie. So when the Levees Bro came out, 
in 2006, and this came out in 97. That They're nine years apart. Yeah. Is it just me, or do these two movies feel like they're like there's like a forty year gap? Oh, you mean like, like in terms to me, of- four little, four little, four little girls felt so old to me, and when the levees broke, felt so modern to me. I would. Here's my guess: it is a mixture of four little girls being a product of cheap video in the '90s as well as using old stock footage, as well as it has not been restored to like 4K or Blu-ray or anything. So it's like an old product covering old footage that hasn't been upgraded to look new. And when you combine that with like fresh digital cameras and everything else from the 2000s, it just has a different look. There's more handheld. It's more current. Um, It's, you know, news footage from helicopters. It's just a lot more active footage, I think. I I know what you mean exactly, though. Like, Four Little Girls feels like it was made in the 80 like 85 or something like that for some reason yeah i i mean i know what you're saying that maybe it is the um the fact that it hasn't been remastered into hd but i'm even talking about like the the wardrobe choices and the the way people look and i started thinking about it and i'm 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 starting to wonder if if there's a visual cue that we can really see in like the pre 9-11 and post 9-11 world if it's like if it's actually visible on film, well, then Twenty Fifth Hour is the movie for you, because that's the movie he made immediately after nine eleven, and that's like it cover. You know, like I don't. I'm sure you remember. Um, I know Twenty Fifth Hour would be the one I'd love for you to revisit. I know that you mentioned you had mixed feelings on that one, and you know people hi- regard it pretty highly. But for those of you who have not seen Twenty Fifth Hour, um, one of the changes that Spike Lee insisted on making into the film was that they were shooting it in post 9-11 New York um, in the months right, right after 9-11. And Spike Lee insisted on that feeling being in the script. And so basically yeah. one of the characters played by Barry Pepper is a uh, he works on Wall Street. He's a finance guy. And one of the scenes of the movie is at his apartment. He looks down and the destruction of the towers is weighing uh, or is right below them they, the construction's going on the cleanup is going on down there and he's like you know i'd move but like the fucking you know the rent's so good here you know who can complain and the so the movie ends up having this kind of sadness about what's been lost and i think in a way the feeling of the country in terms of like oh this feeling we had this like we were on cloud nine everything was going good and now everything's shattered and we're going to this dark place and uh we know that the, a dark future is up ahead. And that kind of parallels the journey of Marty played by Edward Norton, who had everything he was go, everything was going good. And he's been now he's going to prison. This is his last day before he's sent off. So he knows like he's being told you have 12 hours until your life is over. You know, there's a darkness coming for you, my friend. And that, that kind of morbid fear and sadness that he's feeling starts mimicking or, you know, representing what the city's going through, and Twenty Fifth Hour is very much his nine eleven film. Weirdly, yeah. So I think it was. I think it was the the first major. It was the first major Hollywood production to shoot in New York, right after nine eleven. Yeah, and it came out in two thousand two. So I'd imagine if you want to see like the fashion of two thousand one, there's no better place to go to than Twenty Fifth Hour. Yeah, I guess I just wonder if you know, there's there's always talk about the nine eleven being the loss of innocence for an entire generation. I'm just I wonder if it's if it's something we can tangibly see, but maybe I'm just getting uh, up my own ass. Um, the, the last thing I want to say about four little girls before we moved on, uh, another scene in particular that really got to me. Um, uh, there's a scene where one of the moms talks about a nightmare she has. 
Yeah. And she tells her kids, um, especially she's thinking it's going to happen to her oldest son. Um, two weeks before the bombing happens uh, at the church, which is at on a 16th street church. She tells her oldest son, Ray to stay away from 16th street. Cause she, she had a dream where she saw blood just running out of this church and she thought he was going to die there. She's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but there's danger at that church. And, um, they, they, they interview her and they interview another, one of her other daughters. Yeah. It's not, um, yeah. Her who, kids verify that she told them this. Yeah. Yeah. They verify this story and say it happened about two weeks before the bombing. And, um, Ray, the, the oldest who's basically like, mom, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Kind of brushes it off. And the mom says, and the daughter verifies this, that she like got on the floor sobbing hysterically. Um, afterwards like she just couldn't control herself she's just like i know something bad's gonna happen i know something bad's gonna happen a, a vision came to me a vision came to me and two weeks later her youngest girl is dead on at the 16th street church and that that sequence just horrified me and it's just so awful especially because the way she, the way the mom tells it isn't in this like i see things i know things like you get the impression that like this this moment obviously scared her and it's probably it it doesn't seem like she's like the type of person to have a lot of visions or maybe like say a lot of premonitions like this or something. Yeah. And then it comes true. And her reaction to that is like, I guess, I guess I, I saw what I saw for a reason. And like, she's so matter of fact about it in this heartbreaking way. It really, that sequence really chilled me and stuck with me. I, it seems to me looking at Spike's filmography as a whole, uh, he's so obviously race is the kind of through line, but the way that he has kind of built his career upon examining the black experience in all different avenues of what that may encompass. So, you know, he's made films about, um, you know, the systemic racism and the historical racism and uh, music of uh the different, you know, from Michael Jackson, he's made documentaries about him. He's made sports figure documentaries from like Jim Brown uh, to Kobe doing work. Uh, you know, he's trying to, in a way, capture the black experience through history. And I think Four Little Girls is just one, another little corner of that story that his filmography tells of making sure that those those stories get documented. He, you know, it's like he took it upon himself to say, like, I don't want these girls to fall into history or these stories to fall into history. Um, so I need to interview these people before they're gone and before this stuff is forgotten. I need to get it like, you know, on celluloid. So it's forever. And I feel the same way about when the levees broke. I feel like that same whatever drive it was that t- that got him down there. But like a year later, he's like, I need to go down there and I need to film all of this and document this so that we can never forget that this happened. And yeah, just that's a great transition because the opening of when the levees broke, there's a text scroll that says that. He calls this the four hours we're about to watch a document. And he says this document is dedicated to those we lost at Hurricane Katrina and all who have suffered from it, basically. And he he describes it as exactly what you're saying. We finally got able to go to the door. Hour 15, we walked through the door. And I'm walking through the door like, okay, we're finally through this shit. You know, we metal detector for what? We have nothing. What metal detector? Do you have any drugs on you? Do you have any? If I did, I'd smoke them. Fuck. But at any rate, we get through the door. So I'm like, on my, I'm just like trying to get through the shit. She's standing there looking at me. What they call, I learned this in uh, D.C., gritting on me. 
Like she wanted to fight, which is not a good thing. I mean, you already, I don't know who I am, so when I whip your ass, I'm not gonna know who you are either. So I'm like, what the fuck are you looking at me like that for, right? So she's like, um, do we have a problem? Not fucking yet. I said, but come in, let me whisper something you. I said, you know what? You're on your job, and I'm not on my job. I said, let's take this fucking shit outside. You know, you whisper something where nobody else can hear because I'm that angry. Why I just want to take you where nobody else can see you, fuck you up, and go on about my business. You know what I'm saying? Because you're standing here in air conditioning with a goddamn uniform on. Never mind how much they pay you, but the stupid ass attitude behind it. We're out here suffering, and not just because your skin is black like mine, but some fucking sympathy, some compassion. Yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, it's on HBO, uh, same with Four Little Girls, and there is actually a sequel that I do, I've never gotten, I've, I will watch it probably in the next week, um, God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, that is the follow-up to When the Levees Broke. Um, when the Levees Broke is a four-hour documentary about, uh, broken up into two parts, that it, uh, follows Spike Lee and his crew as he went down and interviewed over 100 people and their experiences during Hurricane Katrina, and stuff was still very much torn up, destroyed. The city was still recovering, and all the memories are still fresh. The anger is still there. Um, there, everyone is still, you know, trying to, in a way, figure out what happened, or they they still don't know how things went down the way they did. And it's basically him taking a personal look at the personal stories of people who died and uh, the people who were their experience trapped in you know, the stadium or trapped on highways or drowning or those types of stories mixed with the political failure on a systematic level of both, you know, in terms of the way cities are built and protected in terms of the, how the levees were constructed and what, you know, how much money we invest into those types of things versus who's going to take the credit for what and who is going to take the blame for what and how blame gets kind of diverted in these types of situations. And, you know, somehow things end up not getting done, not to mention, kind of the same thing we're in now like i don't think back you know obviously there's the famous kanye west george w bush george or bush hates black people um and that came directly out of this feeling that these white politicians were killing hundreds of thousands of black people and not giving them food and water and the most basic of things and even like standing on bridges with guns and saying you're not allowed to cross and come into our fucking county like crazy stories that it's just I don't know. It's so much to take in and I'd forgotten all of it basically. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, and it's an incredible documentary. I, it's, it's a hard watch. There's graphic images, but yeah, it's essential to understanding the course of American history. I think. Yeah. I remember when this came out and watching it and being very moved by it. And it was so relatively close to hurricane Katrina. I mean, you know, the documentary came out, I think, within 12 months or something. Uh, at least the first two, you know, it's called A Requiem in Four Acts. So two, two acts are episode one, acts three and four, episode two. And I, I think the first act, the first two acts, the first part of it uh, came out within a year. And then I think the second two, if I remember, came out like a couple weeks after. Um, and it, it was very moving, but it was it was like so much to take in. And there was still so much reckoning that was happening. I mean, and it's so fresh. A lot of these, yeah, yeah, it's so fresh. And like, even in the documentary, you see, you know, months after Katrina, which happens in August of two thousand five, the very end of August two thousand five, and, and we get into like February and March, and people are like still waiting for their FEMA trailers just to have a place to live, 
people have been relocated and moved all outside of New Orleans to places that they had no say in. And like you were like all the horror stories you were saying, I remember all those happening. But when I first watched the documentary, it was all still so fresh that it didn't like it didn't seeing this didn't shock my system because it was also like we were still living in it, I guess. So now that we have this 14 year removal and rewatching the whole thing for the first time, you know, there's so much I remember, but there's also so much that like, holy shit, that's right. They they were arming bridges and not letting black people escape to shelter like that fucking happened and they let the federal they left government bodies on the highway to rot di- for days yes yeah, like- they and the, the federal government didn't show up for five days that is insane that is so fucking insane and you you know this uh, watching it this time around reminded me a lot of what we saw happen in puerto rico recently and the way the trump administration handled that and the the lack of a way that they handled that i guess i should say and how long it took george bush to actually get his ass down to new orleans and how long it took trump to actually get down to puerto rico and those images of donald trump uh shooting uh paper towels into crowds like like a basketball and stuff like that and just the the real lack of care and george bush how he always had that tick where he would kind of smile no matter what he was talking about yeah you know what I'm, you know what i'm saying yeah like that weird tick that to me just showed like a fundamental lack of understanding the seriousness of situations sometimes so there's so much to discuss with this documentary and we're not going to cover everything suffice it to say it's an absolute must watch if you take anything away from the two episodes we spent talking about Spike Lee. His new movie is great. Check it out. You have to watch Do the Right Thing. And you have to watch When the Levees Broke. I think those are, if I could say three things, those would be the three things I would say. Um, but I, th- I think the, the main takeaway is, yeah, Spike Lee knew that there was, uh, that obviously a tragedy had taken place. And then I think he came to understand that, uh, a disservice was happening and um, a, a national uh, reckoning and a racial reckoning was happening in New Orleans in real time and we were able to witness it. And I think, I'm just guessing, but I think that's what drove him to go down and film this documentary epic. And like he said, document everything that was taking place because it was too crazy to believe. I mean, I remember... This happened, like, right after I turned 20. Yeah, August 2005. And this was the first time I personally, like, with my own money, uh, donated to anything. Like, I I remember donating to the Red Cross um, out of, you know, whatever money I made in the summer that year uh, while I was at school. Because I was just, I remember watching the footage and just being so devastated and so, like just dumbfounded at the lack of a response. And I remember when Kanye West said that and my response was like, he's absolutely right. Like, I just remember thinking, how can you view what's been happening in new Orleans and think of anything, but that being the truth? Like why, why has this turned into such a disaster? And I think what the documentary does a really good job of showcasing is, you know, bringing us kind of moment by moment through all the major points from the the few days leading up to the hurricane hitting or kind of missing New Orleans, I guess, 
and the fallout, the months long fallout of that, which the city is still feeling, but also the institutional problems that go back decades and generations that led to something like this happening, right? Yeah. Like it's a co- it's a combination of all of these factors kind of coalescing and New Orleans being the perfect melting pot of uh, racial poor neighborhoods, um, a city that lives under the sea level that needed some type of structural support that was not given to them. And the idea of now we're in a place where um, gentrification is happening all over the country. And wouldn't it be nice if we use this natural disaster as a way to kind of siphon out these undesirables? And when it's time to actually rebuild these neighborhoods, we do it in a way where we can uh, put some nice little Starbucks up and rent it to uh, Tulane College postgrads and stuff like that. You know. Well, early in the film, uh, I, you mentioned this, and this was actually one of the crazier things that I had forgotten, was that Hurricane Katrina largely misses New Orleans. And kind of yeah. like goes by it. And basically what happened is the levees were so weak. It was the flooding. It was the kind of uh, surrounding flooding that actually, you know, surrounded the levees and the levees broke. And that is what destroyed New Orleans. It more so, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was bad rain and bad flooding, but that was not the primary reason that that city went underwater. And the reason those levees broke, they kind of go into this. Those levees were built, they believe after some study to withstand a, uh, a one, you know, a hurricane, you know, on the scale of one to five, a, a one and a five, Hurricane Katrina was a five. So, you know, think about that. Just the it was only built to withstand the weakest of storms in the first place. And um, the, the black community also, it's touched on, have numerous historical reasons to suspect that those levees might have been blown up on purpose. Um, there's been multiple incidents throughout the city where, you know, like you said, they're trying to reroute, like we can destroy this part of the city. We can destroy this neighborhood. And one person even says like, man, they'd kill us all before they let the fourth quarter or the French quarter go under. Like they'll, you know, they'll kill everybody before they let that happen. Um, cause that's like the tourists, that's the track, that's the attraction. That's the historical part of the city. Like they're just like, we're not letting that go. We'll kill everybody first. And so it's not, it's a, it's a structural thing with these levees that are poorly designed and cheaply made and um systematic problems like of the black community not trusting um the white infrastructure of government because of past injustices like blowing up levees and mixed with natural disaster mixed with a federal government that is scared to respond because of a president that happens to be in office at the time who's never had to deal with anything like that before uh mixed you know and the mayor is quite frank throughout the entire uh, documentary. I, I like the mayor and they make it clear he made a few mistakes early on, but like afterwards really tried to kind of rally. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it covers every level. Of course, like you said, and all of this is being told by individuals who are kind of standing in front of their homes that have been destroyed or talking about, you know, when you're seeing images of like old women in wheelchairs, you know, being pushed through 10 feet high water or, you know, dead bodies floating around freely you know, it's just upsetting. And it's hard to imagine that there was a time in this country that we were alive and like very, we were paying attention. You donated money. And it's like, this was happening in this country. You know, like I can't believe there was a government that flew over a city full of dead floating bodies and was like, eh, we'll get to that later. You know, like that's the, yeah, I, it's crazy. Yeah. I visited, I was, I was in new Orleans that year, um, for spring break as a, as a 19 year old dumbass with a bunch of college friends. We went to, um, 
we decided to spend our sophomore year in college when I was 19 in New Orleans. I was there six, five or six months before Katrina. And then I went back in 2010 and I was shocked uh, at how much the tourist area, you know, Bourbon Street in the French Quarter was fine and thriving. But don't don't you dare leave those areas because you're going to see a lot of depressing shit, you know, four years on from Katrina that five years on from Katrina. That's, that was damn sure. I want to talk about, um, a couple of the things you said, especially, uh, the, the black communities in, in New Orleans having reason to maybe question, um, if those levies were intentionally ignited, because there's a lot of talk in the documentary about Hurricane Betsy, which took place in 1965, and then a, a flood that took place in 1927, which until uh, Katrina happened in 2005, the 1927 disaster in New Orleans was considered the greatest American natural disaster like in the history of the, the, the white European colonization of America, like that time frame, the 1927 flood. And what happened in, in 1927 was... Um, you know, they're, they're a system of levees that guard the city of New Orleans um, uh, and different areas guard different neighborhoods in different counties, right? And what happened in 1927 was uh, a system of levees put in place uh, at one of the poorest districts, um, St. Bernard Parish District, which is discussed in modern times in uh, this documentary as well. Uh, which is was not predominantly black at the time, but was a very poor neighborhood, um, their levy system was ignited to reroute flooding and basically demolish this poor neighborhood at the expense of saving the the richer, wealthier parts of New Orleans. That happened in 1927 and happened again in 1965 with Hurricane Betsy. They don't know for sure if it was... Uh, an intentional rerouting, I guess, is the <laughs> the most polite way to say it. Um, but there's a lot of theory that maybe that happened again in 1965, and they've never been able to prove or disprove that theory. And now again, we get to 2005 and Katrina. Now what happens, there's, I'm sure anyone who's been around since Katrina, who's been an adult or a teenager since Katrina happened, knows has heard the term the Ninth Ward, talking about that neighborhood in New Orleans, there was a lot of talk about the Ninth Ward before and or like right during Katrina, the week leading up to it, and then especially after because that was the hardest hit area in New Orleans. The Ninth Ward is a predominantly black, uh, very uh, lower class area of New Orleans, and that is the area that was just completely devastated by Hurricane Katrina. And, there, and that's the the. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and there was like a dozen interviews with people who claim to have heard a very loud explosion in the yes. In the they, there's a yeah in part one of four. Um, Spike actually he does a really great job of kind of just journalistic documentation of the path of the hurricane and kind of time stamping everything. Like, okay, when did they open up the Superdome? When did people get there? At what time did the roof of the Superdome kind of open up and crack open? And what time did it start flooding? And what time did they hear this loud explosion, which was at 9 a.m., which a lot of people heard at once. And that's when they believe the levees broke into the Ninth Ward, um, which leads a lot of people to believe that maybe it was intentional. So what happened was the levees that were protecting the Ninth Ward 
in this poor area, which is what allowed a lot of the flooding, which only ended up being, like you were saying, the equivalent of a Category 1, maybe a Category 2 hurricane because the brunt, the eye of the hurricane, actually missed New Orleans. But this outlying path of the hurricane hit the levees protecting the Ninth Ward in this poor area. But there, to call those that part of the protective system of New Orleans levee, we find out in the documentary, is maybe a misnomer. It's more like an eye wall. A levee is supposed to be land-made. It's supposed to be part of a natural system of blockage to prevent flooding, right? And it's supposed to go to a certain depth within the land. And what you need to do is create a certain amount of land mass to be able to protect other neighborhoods. That's how you can build a levee. That would have required money. That would have required uh, infrastructure in place to protect this poor neighborhood. And so what happens? They don't invest in these poor neighborhoods. So instead they just put these little walls up that don't go the 17 feet required for a levee to withstand something of a hurricane of this magnitude. Instead, they basically just put on a wall that goes maybe 10 feet deep into the land. So when something like the uh, impact of a category one or two hurricane flood hits that wall, it just topples over like a set of dominoes. And that's what happened. So, the Ninth Ward completely floods. A bunch of people here are bang. They think it's intentional to reroute the flooding into the Ninth Ward and away from the French Quarter or Bourbon Street and a lot of these, uh, the, the nicer areas surrounding different parts of the city. And now we have this disaster where uh, people are stranded. The water in some instances is 20 feet deep. There are a bunch of black people and poor people there who can't swim, who were stuck in attics slowly drowning. And with the exception of the uh, the National Air Guard, the federal government doesn't react for days. And people are just left there to drown, to starve, to beg for help, while news helicopters are filming the carnage and just flying by and not sending any reinforcements. And it's just devastating to watch again. Like, to watch it in real time was devastating. To see it again now is still... It just it's just devastating man it just sucks yeah and i mean you can look at it I, oh in terms of it, it is important to look at it as a historical document in terms of you know this yeah. this thing happened and we need to remember all this stuff but especially in terms of seeing how systems fail it's vital i think like you said in terms of looking at the response to puerto rico or even the response to coronavirus something that requires a national uh leadership and requires a kind of planned organization that certainly wasn't there or it requires an investment, a long-term investment in something that might not immediately pay off. It's kind of, you know, it's that thing that we do here in America with medicine where we treat the sick, not the, not the, or, you know, we don't, we don't do preventative care here. We wait until we're right. sick and then we start taking medicine. Whereas they're saying like, you know, no, if you invested whatever, $50 million into this levy, you would have saved how many lives and you would have saved countless, you know, millions of dollars in rebuilding the city. Um, you know, all because you guys couldn't commit to just having a plan in place for 10 to 15 years and seeing it through to make sure the city's safe. And that type of stuff, it happens around the countries in different ways, whether it's a, you know, um, somewhere in the Midwest getting hit by a tornado that's not ready. Like I'm from Ohio 
a giant tornado ripped through last Memorial Day, and there's huge stretches of in poor areas and poor neighborhoods. They're, they're never going to get their houses back. They're not. They're not. Their insurance doesn't cover them enough to get a new house. So those people don't have a place to live anymore. And you know, this document shows people. You know, in the days leading up to, the, they're like, okay, now you guys need to evacuate. Um, but they didn't take into account that they didn't bring any buses in to evacuate people. And there were thousands of people who don't have licenses or don't have cars. There's the elderly who don't have transportation. And when you shut down public transportation and don't bring additional transportation in to bus people out of there, where are they supposed to go? The highways are blocked up with people, you know, and suddenly the the storm hits and then you don't even show up. You, and then people that try to walk out of the city, you put guns in their face and tell them to turn around. And it's just like, yep. it's like, how do, how does this happen in this country? And how do we need to look at this to make sure shit like this doesn't happen anymore? And I don't know, maybe people, there's a, I don't know. It's, it's infuriating. There's a, yeah. There's a fundamental lack of, um, of empathy and even a desire, a willingness to care about, um, people who are deemed lesser than in this country, you see it a lot. I remember, I remember when this was happening and hearing from a lot of people, a lot of people older than me and supposedly wiser than me, who we're, we're seeing this footage and you're seeing all these poor black people on rooftops with white towels begging for help, you know, with signs in the aftermath of Katrina. And a lot of the shit I remember hearing at the time was like, well, they they were told to evacuate. What are they doing there? And you, it should be obvious, but it isn't. But then, you know, you watch these documentaries, you watch something like this documentary and you hear, you know, a year before they, they did a simulation, right? With Hurricane Pam, a fictional hurricane that had the magnitude of something like Katrina. And they estimated out. What's going to happen? Where's the flooding going to go? They knew all of this stuff that could happen, that ended up happening, rather, could have happened. And they also measured, okay, in a in a neighborhood, in a city like New Orleans, how many people aren't going to have access to transportation, right? How many people rely on public transportation or don't have vehicles of themselves? And that number was in the six figures. They knew all of these people couldn't evacuate. Like, of course, the government can say we need to issue a mandatory evacuation, but they're not stupid. They have the data. They know that all of these people are going to be left behind. Like, this is not news to anybody else. And then you see the documentary and the former first lady, the mom of the current president, is talking about refugees who are sent against their will to Texas. And they're saying and she's saying, you know, I'm looking at a lot of these refugees. First off, they're calling American citizens refugees. She's saying, I'm looking at a lot of these refugees and they're stuck in like these giant, basically these holding stations for people who, who have been displaced from Katrina. And she's saying they're, they, they're having it better off right now than they did back at home. Like, fuck you, you old bat. Yeah. I'm glad you're dead. How dare you say that? Like, sure, they're maybe they're fucking not as wealthy as you and they don't have money, but that's their that's their fucking home. Like. How dare you say that about another person? That is so, that is just a fundamental lack of care, uh, of empathy for another person in their life. It is so fucking disgusting to me. And the fact of the matter is, they they put these, they did these simulations, they put this stuff in place. The The Army Corps of Engineers had to come out and say, we fucked up. Of course, they, they knew they fucked up. They, they knew this was a, this was an idea of, 
not putting the money in place to build the infrastructure to protect these poor neighborhoods. They knew that this could happen. They knew it was eventually going to happen. And they ended up going cheap to, and costing lives because that was the rhetoric they made. That, that was the decision they made at the time. They knew that the wetlands were eroding because of global warming, because of oil production off the coast of Louisiana, money that went back to the federal government and didn't go to the state government, money that went to Texas instead of to Louisiana or to the military instead of to Louisiana. They just fucked these people. They just completely fucked them over. And you would hope that any leader in any position or, you know, this is the way in a dream world that politics would work, that something like this, let's say accidents happen. There's a whole domino effect of fuck ups, but, you know, it's a tragedy, but we're going to try and learn from it. And you would hope that like the American government would be like, okay, we're going to spend $200 million or whatever the number is over the next year or two going along the coast to Georgia, to Florida, and we're going to check all these levees and reinforce them and do whatever we have to do to make sure this part of the country is safe. Because clearly we had a problem down here and we need to address it. But that's not what happens. Like, you know, it's it's a state by state thing. It's a budget by budget thing. And they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, we don't have the money for that. And this shit's going to keep happening as long as that's the way we run things of this like, well, you know, we can't pay for that because otherwise we won't be able to afford whatever, you know, the new stadium is or whatever the fuck tax cuts they want or whatever the hell else other project is in fashion that year for that administration. You know, like you would hope that the long-term safety and protection of people is at the forefront of these decisions, but in budget making, whether it's, you know, funding the police and the best way to do that or funding, you know, all these other things, you know, it's, it's crazy. And you hope people watch documentaries like this and can learn something on top of being horrified. It's not just about being horrified. It's about can, what can we take from this? What can we make sure this doesn't happen anymore? Like that, that's the point of watching something like this. It's not just to make you sad. Yeah. And there's, if there's one thing that you can take away from stuff like this and what we're seeing now with the police protests, it's that, you can't wait on your government to take care of you when it comes to situations like this. And that's why as infuriating and depressing as stuff like this can be to watch, I think it's super important to watch it because you need to learn about it. But it's also why I'm very, I'm very heartened by, uh, you know, stuff we've been seeing in this country in the past month and the protests that are taking place, but and not just the protests and people taking to the streets and demanding justice for people like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. But, you know, you're also seeing online and it's sharing nationwide and it's actually um, turning into actionable plans. You're seeing like in L.A., for example, where you and I live, the people's budget for L.A., which are actionable items on how to reroute um, certain budget monies that normally go to the police here and where else it should go. Like they're actually actionable representations of what to do of like not only yes a change needs to be made but here is our plan on how to make that change you know and that is stuff that's getting support not only through the protests and people on the street but actually through channels of government like through local government and activists moving up and taking on that responsibility and i think that's that's awesome and i only hope that the more people watch stuff like this, and the more people who create documentaries like this, uh, the more people will be informed and won't let shit like this happen again because the government will let it happen again. Like it's it's not going to be on them to fix the problem. They're not going to fix the problem. I agree. All right. So do you want to you want to give me your top five? What do you what do you want to do? You want to move on to uh, Spike? Yeah, so spike list. Let's do it. All right. Um, our, our our 
our spike cannon. Like, let's say you can have if if you need to pick six, or if you only think you you think four are just there's not a clear number five. That's fine. But to me, Spike is so diverse. Like we said, he's done docs, he's done shorts, music videos, features, stage work. That five pieces of work from Spike Lee that are the like the Library of Congress is going to save. What's your top five? Uh, all right. Well, number one is I, I kind of gave my list, but my list has changed uh, uh, from two weeks ago. So um, my number one. Let's do. We'll do one at a time. Like you start with your. I mean, since our normally I would say let's go five to one, but since we kind of know what the tops is, let's start. Well, you do your one, then I'll do my one. You do your two, I'll do my two. All right. Well, my number one is do the right thing. It's a perfect film. It's in my top ten of all time. It's not leaving that list anytime soon. It's one. It's just one of the most perfect films ever made. I can't, there's nothing I can say about it that hasn't been said better. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's one of the not just best films about race, about New York, about people. It's a hangout movie. It's about our society back then, what it says about us now, things that never change, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's a perfect film. I can't say enough about it. Everyone, but everyone probably knows that too. Yes. And it's my number one as well. What's your number two? Malcolm X, which I revisited, and I was so happy to find that it's three and a half hours that kind of breeze by, um, and it's Denzel's best performance, and it's an epic achievement. And I actually think my top three, I actually think, are the most tonally consistent films that he's made in terms of, you know, the thing I like about him is how erratic his films can be and kind of all over the place and trying a lot of things, but I really appreciate that, like, Malcolm X has so much style, but it's still... It's you know he 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 went he tried to make a classic classical film in a way and tried to make it beautiful and grand and big and I I love it it's it's also documenting someone who I think gets often overshadowed by Martin Luther King and kind of explains how he is just as important and in many ways way more misunderstood than um, Martin Luther King is. Um, because I think most people probably just are like, oh yeah, Malcolm or Martin Luther King's the nice one, and Malcolm X is the angry, violent one, right? Um, and I think, you know, that's probably the impression I had as a kid. Um, but films like that have, have really helped me over time understand the the complexity of the issues that they were espousing and the way their views have changed or did change over their lifetimes. So Malcolm X, go seek it out. It's on Netflix now or HBO. It's on one of the two. I watched it there. I believe Netflix. Uh, my number two is When the Levees Broke. It's absolutely essential. We just talked about it. I don't need to reiterate Yeah, That's, that's my number two. That's my number three. Okay. Um, my number three, <laughs> Phil, <laughs> to Five Bloods. Really? Five Bloods is my number, really? is my number 11. Oh, <laughs> not even in the top 10. Not even in the top 10, no. It's it's gonna climb up, perhaps. Just, perhaps, yeah. I was I was right about Summer of Sam. I'm gonna be right about this, but that's my number three. I think it's uh, his best film besides Do the Right Thing. I'm gonna say it. At least for me, it's the most emotionally impacted I felt after the first watch of a Spike Lee movie. Besides, I mean, excluding Doc, so excluding When the Levees Broke, it's the most emotional reaction I've had to a Spike Lee movie upon first viewing. Besides, Do the Right Thing. So. For now, I got to put it there. It's my number three. That's fine. Um, my number four is my number... F- it's probably higher than it would be for other people. I'll grant that. But it's my first spike. It's my 
it's, it's still an amazing movie that I I love, and it's He Got Game. Oh, I love that choice. Yeah, I I, I think that yeah, choice is awesome. That's my number four. I think it's just everything that I like that he does. It's it's kind of the movie that introduced me to him. I think that's a large part of my affection for it. But I think it's one of Denzel's best performance performances. I think it's a smart script. I think it's um, about things he cares about, and in terms of the you know the influence of young players uh, on college players and the corruption of that and the corruption of sports and media and racism and everything else that goes into that world. And I don't, is there any other, is there a better like hard looking look into the basketball, you know, like, is there blue chips? What, what What's the, I was going to say blue chips the, is the first thing that came to mind. What's the other, I mean, like, Hoosiers, but that's, you know, obviously like a fantasy. Um, well, yeah, I'm talking like, I guess the kind of almost any given Sunday for football, like that's sort of the way yeah. I feel about he got game where it's like one of the few movies that's actually like really looking into how kind of corrupt and fucked up that system is and the way it traps young men and you know, how hard it is to kind of overcome the temptations that are being brought in. I mean, also I think uh, no, no basketball movie captures just the, like the quiet beauty of shooting hoops. Like, just watching Ray Allen shoot yeah. on an on an empty um, outdoor court over and over again while like jazz is playing. I think that's <laughs> like it doesn't get any better. The opening that. that's pure sex. the opening intro or the of course the opening intro. But um the intro of that movie with the montage of the players around the world like uh you know playing the game, it's it's fucking incredible. I love He Got Game. Yeah. And I've been listening to that song by, by Public Enemy a lot this week. It's great. Their uh, their last their last great moment in pop culture. Um, my number four is Malcolm X. Of course, can't uh, can't leave that one out. Nice. Um, I'm gonna switch my number five and number six. I had not updated this since watching it, but my current number five um, is I think just a perfect example of the genre and what I it's it's a, one of the rare kind of exceptions in his filmography. But it's Inside Man, um, which I just think is maybe the most watchable movie he's made. Like that's one I could just watch. I agree. I think, I think in perhaps, I mean, do the right thing is actually very watchable and it's a fun, funny movie. You know, Malcolm X is, I think a a fun movie in a way, but I think that's, but it's three and a half, but it's three and a half hours and whatever. Inside man's just a fucking awesome crime bank heist movie. That's smart and twisted, but also has a lot of his stylistic flourishes and still finds a way to be about, race on occasion and a lot of his other ideas that he's kind of been fascinated by. It's got a fucking movie star, a hell of a movie star performance from Denzel. Jodie Foster is a badass. Clive Owen is like peak Clive Owen. Um, yeah, I, I love inside man. I love it, but I do too. Uh, yes, I was just, Go ahead. sorry, but that was my number five until today when I revisited bamboozled, which is my, I think now, I would slight slightly move up ahead to Inside Man, maybe, maybe not, but I, I did want to. It's my that is my number five is um, Bamboozled. Nice. Well, I, I rewatched that today, and I did just kind of want to make sure I mentioned it, just because, especially I mentioned it in the intro. The week we've had with uh, white actors doing black voices on cartoons and the Tina Fey backlash about some of the blackface stuff that's appeared on her shows and. Um, and um, community, just they got rid of an episode of season two when Chang yeah. wears blackface. Yeah, and you know, some in some cases, I you know, we discussed that one on community. Like, it seems like they're trying to be semi aware of it or commenting on it in a way, but I think there's still just kind of a reaction of like, why are we still trying to like 
pull jokes from this. Like, can we just not? Um, which, you know, like is fair, whatever, I guess. Um, depending on the creator and what they're trying to go for. Because, you know, we also talked about Mad Men being a very historical example of using it that I don't think is offensive at all, or the way it, yeah. it offends in the way it's supposed to. And the characters watching him, are Roger doing it, are offended, clearly. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. Um, but Bamboozled came out 20 years ago, and it. for those of you who don't know, it's, I think it's one of his smaller films. Bamboozled's about a... Uh, kind of a producer's s story of a guy who wants to create a show. All his white Michael Rappaport is an amazing television uh, executive who wants a black show for a hip audience. And Damon Wayans is like, I'm going to give him the most racially stereotyped, the blackest, most, you know, all you want is us to be these, you know, old timey kind of blackface characters of black people. You don't actually care about us as people because I'm, br- I'm bringing you shows like kind of Cosby show s things, but you don't want those. You want this like ridiculous version. So I'm going to give you the most ridiculous version. So the movie follows him setting up this uh, minstrel show with black actors wearing blackface and doing a very, very racist character version of old school kind of Aunt Jemima eating watermelons, eating chickens, being late for everything type characters that have plagued um, black actors and black performers for years. And it's an examination of, you know, white culture and not only white people really loving the show, but black people taking to it too. And it's just like, came out 20 years ago, I was reading reviews and clearly it was too much for people at the time, but it's one of those things that you're like, oh yeah, Spike was just ahead of everyone on this one. And I revisited, revisiting it Exactly right. Yeah, I watched it today. I was like, this movie's so fucking prescient. It, it, it's upsetting. So, Dude, I remember. So that that was uh, one of my first DVD purchases. I remember I didn't see it in theaters. It came out when I was like 14 or 15. But I remember seeing it immediately when it hit home video. And I remember the reviews. Um, you know, this is post He Got Game. This is even post Summer of Sam. Um, and I remember watching it and thought it was awesome i'm like this this movie blows my mind and then i remember the reviews were shit and and i started to doubt i'm like wait am i just like an idiot kid and i don't get that this movie should be uh better somehow and i'm not understanding it and i remember in my head at that time thinking like oh well when i'm older i'll either know if i was right or if i was just a dumb kid (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i think time has just proven me right like he really was ahead of his time and i think even stuff um, that we didn't get a chance to touch on, like Girl 6. I'm curious to look at and see, you know, even if it, a movie like that maybe has more flaws than something like Bamboozled, which I think is really well done. You know, maybe he was, even with something like Girl 6, much ahead of his time as we talk about a movie that came out in the mid-90s about a girl's place in Hollywood and what she does to combat that, you know, which is something we're still reckoning with 25 years later. Yeah, uh, he's just he's just very very frequently ahead of uh, ahead of the times, and as a black filmmaker, I think that's probably something that he has to reckon with anyway, uh, which is unfortunate. And I would just say, you know, we spent two episodes talking about Spike, and you know, he's a guy. I'm so glad he has a movie right now that's making waves and doing really well because um, a guy like him doesn't come around too often, and we'll miss him when he's gone. He's been so active now for four decades, like he's just. He's just constantly doing new shit and trying new things and putting stuff out there. And like you said earlier, just documenting experiences. And I've heard backlash and it's never from black people about Spike Lee. And it's like, why is he so fixated on race? Every movie is about race. And it's like the more the more you understand 
the experience of black people in this country. And if you're some, if you were someone like Spike Lee, how could you not? You know how how can how could everything not be seen through that lens? It's just, and thank God he does because most people don't like he's one one of the exceptions you know people focus on him and he's so controversial because he's one of the only ones who does that and just i thank god he does i I love spike lee i'm glad he's still doing it and he's still kicking ass all these years later and anyone that says that i think probably have not watched a a chunk of his films and really considered them because he's not some anti-white pro-black just general filmmaker who's just making movies about how white people are evil if that's what people think he's making he's often making movies like He'll put a character like Delroy Lindo into Five Bloods, who's a Trump supporter and a MAGA supporter. And it might seem, and of course, he's going to make fun of it a little bit, but he, you know, you'll be surprised. Like, oh, he's taking this seriously. He's going to take, he's going to take this character to heart. He's not going to just make him a purely evil person. And he's kind of spent his career doing stuff like that, you know, where he asks you to spend some time with some horrible people, like I was talking about in Summer of Sam or School Days is a really complicated look at this you know, the black cult, the culture on black campuses. And she's got to have it as a look at black sexuality. Jungle fever is black and white sexuality and the mixed relationships. Clockers is about the relationship between white police officers and, uh, black, you know, drug dealers in the black, uh, you know, neighborhoods that are in New York, get on the bus. You, you just watch get on the bus. Um, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but you know, that's a great example of like getting 15 different black perspectives and just having them debate. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you did you like revisiting Get on the Bus? I, I actually was very surprised. I did. Yeah, yeah that was a that was a movie that um, I I saw a lot of, but I don't think I ever saw front to back as a kid. It was an HBO movie. I think we talked about this last time. I yeah, we well, um, I talked about how I had seen it. I was just curious if you liked it. You, okay, you, yeah, had, yeah, you hadn't yeah. watched it. Yeah. No, I was just saying as I was saying this out loud, I'm like, we did we go over? Did I tell this exact same thing that I saw a lot on cable? Um, yeah, but it was a big cable movie, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And yes, um, I think it held up. What I, I I love, I can really enjoy movies like that where a lot of it is just uh, characters having conversations and kind of like. Um, spitballing ideas that to me is I can I, I'm always down with stuff like that like a lot of people make fun of a movie like Waking Life maybe I don't know but I'm down to to hear conversations so a movie like Get on the Bus is right up my alley I very much enjoyed it all right I think you know that those are our top fives of uh, the only other things I want to shout out like kind of looking at his filmography is just um He's had a few missteps in recent years. Like, I don't think Red Hook Summer works for a big reason, actually, uh, that I, I don't want to spoil. Um, but there's a twist in that movie that I actually think ruins the movie. Um, Old Boy, I don't think works. Um, I can't wait to watch If God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. But, you know, he's really like, you watch Kobe doing work. Uh, you know, he has the, the we John Linguizamo uh, freak. He did that stuff in the 90s. He freak. Uh, Coming out, he has American Utopia. Um, speaking of something that you, yeah, the David Byrne, yeah, the David Byrne show that you can kind of see a preview of if you watch his SNL performance and it looks fucking incredible. And, um, yeah, it does. he just, he is going to continue to produce work, you know, like three, he, he's released technically two shorts this year and a feature. And that's just this year on top of the myriad of work. And he just does so many crazy different things. And, uh, like you said, he has an Oscar for uh, one uh, documentaries and he has a writing Oscar for black Klansman. He's been nominated for best director and he has a lifetime achievement award. Like he's just going through his filmography the last few weeks has really underlined like, Oh yeah, he's like 
really, really high in the upper echelon of the greatest filmmakers working right now, American or otherwise, whoever it is. Just, I think, yep. I think he's an A-lister. He's a major player. Yeah, he's up there. He's as big as Spielberg and Scorsese in my book. I, I don't anyone who's ranks him any lower is a fool in my eyes. Hell yeah, I agree. I'm I'm so glad we did this. Uh, Spike deserves it. Um, he's an important filmmaker, and appreciate we got to appreciate him now. We can't wait like we do with everybody. Appreciate Spike Lee now before it's too late, guys. All right, are, are we good? You good to wrap up? We're good. All right. I'm good, baby. All right. Um, do you have any recommendations for the week? Uh, I did, didn't I? What did I have? Oh, um, speaking of uh, uh, the black experience in America, I just finished a great book called The Underground Railroad, written by Colson Whitehead, which it won uh, the Pulitzer in 2016. Um, he Bing. just won back-to-back uh, Pulitzer Prizes for literature because in 2019 he came out with the Nickel Boys and um, this is the first of his that I have read uh, it is about a runaway slave named Cora who leaves Georgia on the literal Underground Railroad um, a series of tracks and tunnels beneath the earth all throughout the south to help slaves um, escape their horrible situations in 19th century America and it's a devastating brilliant book um i I don't want to spoil it uh but i i would say it's a must read i think it's the type of book that will eventually be on you know summer reading curriculums in high school it's that it's that type of book i really really enjoyed it um well you know you know uh it's a series right you know barry jenkins directed uh the tv series version of it and for amazon it's coming out next year Oh, really? Yeah, it's Barry Jenkins' next project. I guess they were like only a few days away from wrapping the series when the coronavirus stuff hit. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, while reading it, I'm like, this is obviously going to be some big Hollywood project eventually, if it wasn't already. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a must-read. Colson is a must-read. He's on that. Uh, to me, I feel like he's one of those he's one of those black authors in America, the Toni Morrison from back in the day, and I guess currently, you know, along with like Jesmyn Ward, another really great black author, um, who wrote uh, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing, which are two fantastic novels that I would highly recommend as well. I would say uh, read those read those black authors, Colson Whitehead and Jesmyn Ward. Nice. Um, I definitely have questions about the Underground Railroad because, like you said, I, I've read that description of it before, and I'm like, so there's a train? They're, they're kind of literalizing the Underground Railroad in the story? They are, yes. Okay, interesting. Anyway, um my recommendations, uh, speaking of books that are, are turned into series, uh, my recommendation, I have not read the book, but um, it is now a series called HBO called I Will Be Gone in the Dark. It is an adaptation of a book of the same name about the hunt for the Golden State Killer. And uh, I read it. Yeah, Tom read it. And episode one aired just yesterday on HBO. It's one of six. And I will be continuing to watch it because it is very good. It is about uh, one woman who is a true crime blogger who becomes obsessed uh, Pat Oswalt's wife, um, famously, she becomes obsessed with trying to track down this cold case killer who is um, one of the most vicious and violent rapists and killers in the Sacramento area that who had never been caught and had largely gone unnoticed by most major publications. Most people hadn't heard of him. So the story of the show follows her journey to writing the book and the crazy uh, true life things that I don't know if I want to spoil here for those of you who don't know, but many twists and turns. Well, there was also a, a news... Sorry to interrupt. There was a news story today that broke. Oh, did you I did not. Hear? I did not see that. 
We'll, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll talk off mic. We'll talk, I'll ask you off mic. Okay. Um, the, the only other thing I was going to mention, I'm surprised uh, you have not mentioned it at all, actually. Not, maybe not on mic, but not even to me personally. Um, it came out two weeks ago. I keep meaning to bring it up. Uh, I've been listening to it a ton lately. It is John Prine released a single, uh, belated single after his death called I Remember Everything. And it's a gorgeous track. Um, it just reminds me of the kind of Johnny Cash American recordings of just an old man with an acoustic guitar singing about like people that have come and gone and then life. And it's just, it breaks my heart and it's beautiful and sad and I love it. And I would definitely recommend checking that out. I'll lay a little bit of it on right now. I've been down this road before. I remember every tree, every single blade of grass holds a special place for me. And I remember every town and every hotel room and every song I ever sang on a guitar out of tin. I remember All right. Every Have you heard it? I just did for the first time. That was gorgeous. Good. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't heard it. Phil's going to put it in later, but I will listen. I, for some reason, I feel like I maybe heard about it and then didn't listen or I didn't hear about it, but I haven't listened to it yet. I got to check it out. It's, yeah, you'll cry. So just be ready for it. I'm, I'm sure I will. He makes me cry. I love, rest in peace, John. I love you. Yeah. Um. The only other thing I would say is it's Pride Month. We haven't mentioned that at all. Go Pride. We, 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 happy Pride, happy y'all. Happy Pride, y'all. Um, but other than that, um, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. It is now available on iTunes, in the Google Store, Stitcher, and on YouTube. You can send us an email or comments at howsthatdaypod at gmail, all one word. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. Tom, tell them where to find you. Big Fat Bond on Twitter. Bindi, Tom, Bindi on Instagram. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Phil underscore Wiedenheft, P. Wiedenheft on Instagram, or you can follow me on Letterboxd and check out my daily reviews of what I've been watching. So with that, Tom, I'll see you next week where we will be talking about Hamilton, that show you might have heard of. Yeah, I was going to start wrapping. I'm not going to do it. Bye, everybody. Love you all. All right. See you.